I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Carrie Nelson. And we love to watch. We love to watch officially become Bernie Bros. going with that <laughs> uh i thought it could have been burning down the house i Bernie i just know da- Ber- david bernie down the house yeah <laughs> oh our house he has two songs about buildings being on fire he's an arsonist <laughs> i mean there's definitely a world where a lot of things being different in upbringing and david byrne is ted kaczynski right no. <laughs> it's not true. Um, he oh. ha- he does have that like warm nerd. Also, maybe sends out a manifesto to his uh his uh fellows at the college <laughs> kind of vibe, right? I mean, uh, le- he, he I could see him disbanding the band via manifesto. He didn't do it that way. He did it via the L.A. Times or whatever. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I love David Byrne. I love Talking Hands. And I'm excited to talk about this month. So what is this? Where we love to watch for a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of a month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And it is the first week of May. It's the beginning of a new month. Uh, and it's a return to one of our old workhorses. Uh, which is Musical May. This is Musical uh, May 4. We came back for some more. And uh, we've tried to do themes in our Musical Mays before. We did musicals that neither Peter and I had seen, because Peter famously, if you, famous in the like auspices of if you've listened to this show religiously, <laughs> but famously... <laughs> Uh, hated musicals, and that's why we did the first Musical May around musicals that neither of us had really seen, to give ourselves a fresh perspective on it. Uh, That was a mistake in general. But somewhere along the line, uh, Peter got the musical bug and decided maybe this is worth talking about. So we did cool hip musicals uh, for number two, which was like Little Shop of Horrors and Tokyo Tribe and stuff like that. And then we did kind of classic musicals a couple years ago with Singing in the Rain and uh, Pennies from Heaven and Top Hat. Uh, And we just had a lot of musicals that we still wanted to talk about. Some very unconventional um, musicals that we wanted to talk about uh, and decided to just do kind of a we're back for more to talk about uh, musicals and so that includes stuff that we'll be talking about later this month like uh that thing you do and uh something that's a more conventional musical like jesus christ superstar but we're starting it out with uh basically two movies started as one we decided it made sense to all watch and cover the other one and it is a musical 
uh, much like Hamilton in that every word is sung, but not like Hamilton in that it's a just a concert film of the talking heads called Stop Making Sense. Uh, I think considered um, the best concert film of all time pretty unanimously. I feel like there's oh, some, yeah. I feel like there's some last waltzes in there and stuff last like that. Last waltz <clears throat> it gets in there. I think in 10 years, Homecoming uh, will probably be in contention. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, honestly, most of them. <laughs> get forgotten in like the the churn of history and like that's something i want to start off with because like i don't generally like concert films because generally concert films they're generally very boring and dry and i like that they exist because they're at least capturing what the band like the act looked like for posterity but like the the other big issue is like they're usually about bands i don't really care about like i don't care about watching a justin bieber or a u2 documentary i definitely do not want to see michael jackson rehearsing for his final la- his final last concert with some weird 3d sections chucked in um what a, what other bands have made concert docs that you guys don't care about i mean uh, I, th- I think if you want to think like you know the the start of the form like it's stuff like monterey pop and like the work that pennebaker did but then stop making sense reimagined the genre in a way and like brought it to new heights and that's why it's kind of in the in in that spot now that that's that's the top one that everyone always focuses on yeah Yeah, and i in the last waltz i feel like among film dorks are are pretty much in you know neck and neck well and people really like like and i think last waltz is like definitely also a worthy successor but let's get out of the way talking heads is my favorite band and it has been for since i was a baby um and so uh, it gets a natural edge. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I, I like I think of like DVDs of concerts I've purchased. Right. And I I wouldn't necessarily call them like good films. It's more just like I like this band or this artist and this is a fun way. And they're like a good live, Like they their music sounds good live. And it's fun to sometimes put on like as opposed to putting on a CD or a Spotify mix, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to listen to this, I'm going to watch or like a band I never got a chance to watch. Like um you guys are going to laugh, but the first album I ever bought and the first like adult band I ever got into uh was Genesis because that's the type of kid I was. Yes. I I love that they couldn't dance. Um but like seeing <laughs> seeing uh Genesis in concert for me was impossible. Um, and I know they did a reunion tour with Phil Collins at some point and the, it, like in Vegas and the tickets were like 500 bucks and I was like 22 and it's like, well, obviously that will not happen. And so I picked up their like they had a concert, you know, DVD and I bought that and that's like, oh, this is like cool to see what it would have been like. But I didn't walk away. like it's a band I already liked. I knew all the songs, uh, had a lot of nostalgia in this case for it and um, you know, I, I'm just basically a different way to listen to songs. I already know. I didn't walk away going like, this is a film. This is like a piece of art. This somehow like elevates the music. It's just like, oh, it's cool that like on some of the songs, Phil Collins would go play drums. Um, and he has this giant, that's kind of cool. I never, I'm never going to get to see that. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff like that of bands that I love that I will never get to see live. Like, um, uh, I love uh, I love the Clash. Like they they have a concert film I really like, but it's not. I like it because I get to see the Clash play, 
and that's yeah. fun. Um, Beastie Boys, one of the saddest ones where I didn't make the drive for a concert and it was their last tour that makes me really sad. Like, I really love their movie. Like, awesome, I fucking shot that. That's actually probably the one I would call my second favorite after this one. Um, but they do something really interesting with that, with give um, give 50 people in the audience of their uh, Madison Square Garden show, or uh, I think it's Madison Square Garden, 50, 50 cameras. They wouldn't do their last big show somewhere else, right? Uh, yeah, well, they gave just 50 audience members in different locations and different seats digital cameras, and then they got them returned at the end. Uh, and MCA edited it all together. So it's this really weird from all the different crowds. So you have like everything from like someone going to the bathroom mid song and you hear like the sounds of that to like Ben Stiller in the back rapping as hard as he can. Like it's like this almost found footage Beastie Boys concert film and it's it's fantastic. Um, but again, I was watching a band that I already loved. I already knew the song and it was a fun way to do it. Stop making sense for me, Peter. You're going to have a longer history with this. So I think, oh, wait, hold on. Peter, we're so excited to talk about stuff. We did a terrible mm-hmm. thing. I did, specifically. We, we did her dirty. We, do, we did done her dirty. <laughs> now I feel weird. Uh, hi, Carrie. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> from Happy Endings. It's a quote. From a character on that show. Uh, uh, Carrie. Carrie, a.k.a. the producer, is here with us. Live in studio. Well, presumably the, the studio of her apartment. And the <laughs> my, my, my kitchen studio. <laughs> uh, yeah, Carrie, thank you for so much for coming on the show. Uh, we're, you you feel so like excited. a host at this point that it was like, let's just get into it. But yeah, uh, that's she doesn't introduce me. Yeah. I feel I like I could I, I could kind of like jump in. At, at you know any random episode at this point and it would feel kind of okay yeah, <laughs> yeah. we definitely feel that way but still please introduce yourself to our audience and also before we dive into our talking heads history which uh, is gonna go full war i think tell us you picked this movie you're gonna be on another episode this month um, mm-hmm. but we had some space and love having you on the show and when you picked this i assume it was the natural affinity that like anyone who's seen this movie usually talks about it with and was was really surprised and excited when i found out why you picked it yeah um hi i'm carrie um i feel i was thinking about it and i was like i i i never know what to say in these intros because i i've talked so many times on the show but so i was thinking since since this is about a concert film i will tell you that the first concert i ever went to was the spice girls which is going to very specifically date me if you've, you know, wondered, I wonder how old Carrie is. Um, that will tell you exactly when I was in middle school. Um, it was a weirdly inappropriate place for a 12-year-old to be, but it was great. I learned a lot. Um, I picked this film because, as as you may know, I am an archival researcher. I work in documentary film and TV, and this is like my probably my biggest blind spot, or was my biggest blind spot with documentaries. Um, certainly, concert documentaries. Um, we taught the last time I was on was uh, the um, 2019 episode where. Uh, we talked a bit about Homecoming, which yeah. was a concert doc that I absolutely loved, but it's not a genre of documentary that I've spent a lot of time with. Mm-hmm. And 
for some reason, Stop Making Sense has just passed me by. And I I like the talking heads very... It's just talking heads. I always say the talking heads, but it's just talking heads, right? They, they tried to release a live album specifically to dissuade you from calling them the talking heads. But it's like <laughs> it's like one of my – they did. The name of this band is Talking Heads. Is, is oh, like my their, God. It's their live album. Um, but it's the same thing with me. I, I get it. Like one of my favorite bands, um, which I'm actually going to talk a little bit about tonight, is Pixies. And oh, I, yeah. I call them the Pixies, even though they are very specifically have said they are Pixies. It's hard. It's a hard, it's hard. verbal tick. But it's also uh, once you you maybe put more respect on the band than they do. <laughs> like, they're the pixies. They're the talking heads. It's true. There are no other talking. They're not all talking no heads. <laughs> um, but I've I've been like a casual talking heads listener for a long time, and I don't. I, I've I've never like I know a lot of the big songs, but I don't really know their albums terribly well. I had never seen any of the movies, and seeing this opportunity, I just kind of thought, well, this is this is the moment I need to find out why this is the concert doc that everyone focuses on. And uh, I'm glad I did. It was really good. <laughs> I'm I'm so glad you did too because um, I definitely feel a kinship with that. Like. Uh... You know, you're me five years or six years in the past because, yeah. uh, you know, Peter Peter mentioned that this has been his favorite fair band since I've known him. I think your favorite song is Heaven, right? Like of all time, Peter? Um. So, yeah, let me let me jump in there real quickly. Uh. So this is like music that like my whole family is okay. into, which is kind of rare because my mom likes cool music, uh, but my dad is a little square. Um, my, uh, <clears throat> my two closest siblings are, in terms of age, uh, we have fairly similar music taste, but still there's differences. And then, like, my oldest sister, we don't have a whole lot in common in music. And it's, like, th- this is a-, a band that, like, all of us get very excited about. And there's, like, a specific memory that all of the kids share, which is, like, my mom cleaning the house and blasting, speaking in tongues. And so, like, this stuff is burned into my... It's it's burned into who I am as a person and to the point where when I had to choose a song to dance with my mom to at my wedding, I chose heaven. So I was like, because I was like, okay. Also, because the DJ didn't have making slippy sloppy. Yeah, that was. (laughs) (laughs) It's also from speaking in tongues. I don't it's a good song. Yeah, yeah. My mom was like, "How do you slow dance?" And I was like, "I don't know. We're gonna have to figure it out." Um, but it was, it was a. I could have picked something that was more thematically appropriate, but like, in reality, like that speaks to my relationship with my mom. Like, where, where, like, it needed to be a slow song, obviously, just because like the nature of it being at my wedding. But like, that speaks to the, to to me and my mom are like we uh we, we sometimes like these songs with these sort of. Uh, not just an earworm quality, but this thing where you're like, what the fuck? Is he talking about an actual bar? Is he actually talking about heaven? Is there a literal explanation? He's given like six of them. And like, uh, it, there was something, there's like a, a, a bit of like liberated silliness to it that like I thought spoke to my mom and my relationship. Um, and like, that that's, that's as like, I think that kind of sums up uh you know like from the womb to like my wedding like womb I, to the two uh david byrne and the rest of the talking heads have been been with me i yeah i hope to my tomb i hope i don't like turn 50 and i'm like eh. <laughs> he's kind of a weirdo i don't i don't know if i like it <laughs> oh uh, get a tailor get a, david byrne get a, 
get a job. Oh, wait, you found a job? Perfect. Um, <laughs> talking head song reference. He never puts out good albums anymore, and people will be like, you're 50, Pete. He died 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, your mom is a absolutely lovely person who had a lot of questions for me specifically, but was very gracious <laughs> in, in, uh, in hearing them and listening to a uh, probably longer than it needs to explanation about uh, Bloodborne Facebook friend groups and why I was yeah. at his wedding with my wife. Um, was your, son, your youngest son's wedding, your wife, uh, and your dad what, what, on the like other hand. Wedding, like, what are, what are your intentions with my child? Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, and your dad is a uh, very nice but very scary man when he wants people to stop playing Super Nintendo and get out of his house. <laughs> so I, I got a fun vision into what it was like to be 12 at a sleepover that's gone on too long as well. Uh, yeah. That's um, so precious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my favorite, yeah, my favorite talking head song is either Heaven or uh, the live version of uh, Love Building on Fire because Great uh, David, the, the, the studio version of it is like a, a good pop song, but the live version on the name of this band is Talking Heads where he's literally screaming fire. Like you can picture him at a live yeah. concert venue screaming fire in, 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 in a building. And like, that's sort of like, that sort of g- gentle, um, gentle pr- provocation, I think, is like speaks to another aspect of David Byrne that I love, like the sincerity of of heaven. That like it's genuinely a sweet song, but like a little bit of a mystery of a song, and then love building on fire where he's screaming fire in a crowded building. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of both halves of it that I I really like because like I I that's one reason that I was never super into. Um, a lot of punk bands was because it was just the provocation, but I needed the sincerity too. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, we're definitely, we, as we've talked about on don't you dare, like, you know, we discovered different bands at different times. Our parents like different stuff. I've mentioned my dad's, uh, obsessiveness with the song funky town by lip sync. Well, well past its expiration date. Um, but he also, like, my dad, you know, was on the radio since I was a kid, uh, and before I was born, and he had a huge record collection, loved The Who, and, like, um, loved some stuff that I was not a big fan of, like, uh, Jethro Tull and stuff like that, but he, he had a, like, um, he had a big record collection. My mom was, uh, was never much into music, but once she found something that she liked, she, like, liked it. Like, I remember her, like, um... She, you know, like Bare Naked Ladies. She really liked Bare Naked Ladies. She hated the name. She made that clear every time. She said she liked their music. Uh, but she, you know, she kind of liked that kind of more, more poppy stuff. But the Talking Heads were not in our house at all. And, um, and you know, I found other bands that I end up falling in love with, I think, in that same obsessiveness where I, I, I think, Peter, you'll probably talk about just kind of consuming all their albums, their singles, their B-sides, their live versions, you know, at, at different points uh, in my life, uh, stuff like, you know, Beastie Boys or Pixies or The Clash or um, more, you know, more recently, more recently a band like The Hold Steady or something like that. And um, but Talking Heads were a band that like I feel like their song that I knew them from in high school as like an 80s band. I didn't like that much. I didn't like Burning Down the House. Um, it just, it just kind of, it didn't click with me and it actually kind of seemed weird that it was a hit. Like it kind of seemed annoying. Um, I did like once in a lifetime, although the first time I ever heard that song 
was the Muppets Tonight where Kermit <laughs> sings it in a big suit. Oh my it's god. It's a good cover. It's when good I was cover. when I was 13 and I was and I but I really liked that song and then I found out it was a band song. And so like I connected with Once in a Lifetime quite a bit and I like I guess you know 13 to junior high-ish. But you still think Kermit owns that. Oh yeah, Kermit clearly that's the best version. Um uh, but I, I remember that very clearly and that's like what is this song? And I forget how I I think I think I like Googled like or I wouldn't have Googled it, I would have like info seeked it, but I figured out what song it was and like how to listen to it and stuff. Um uh, and then I didn't think much of them and then in um college when I was making a concerted effort to dis- discover albums of bands that were like uh, you know, uh, considered really great. So I was buying, uh, you know, going to Best Buy and pouring over any album that was on the Rolling Stones top 500 list. And, uh, you know, some of that ended up making me fall in love with bands, uh, like that I just gotten used to, like the Beatles. Like I knew Can't Buy Me Love, and then I bought Revolver and, you know, Sgt. Pepper's. I'm like, holy shit, like this is like really, really good. Um, as opposed to just these songs I've heard all my life and give no thought to. And I bought for Talking Heads, I bought 77 and Remain in Light, specifically Remain in Light because it had Once in a Lifetime. And I listened to them and I liked uh, some of the songs. Like, obviously, I liked Psycho Killer and I liked Uh Oh, Love Comes to Town. Kiss, kiss and- what? Yeah, oh, thanks. Because <laughs> it's tight. Um, and I loved uh, the one, the only song I feel like that was new that, like, I would put on playlists for 10 years was Born Under Punches specifically. Like, I fucking loved that song. And then obviously still loved, you know, that was the only, like, I feel like new song to me that I was, like, really connected to. But I never, I never poured over those albums. I never, I always was like, one of these days I got to get these other albums that people really like, like Fear of Music. and, And it wasn't until about, I guess it's now, like, seven years ago. That I finally, or six years ago, that I finally got around to watching Stop Making Sense. Um, and and I, it was one of those things where, I, like, I really liked the name of it. I liked the cover of it. And everyone would be like, this is one of the best movies of all time on, like, critics and stuff I followed. And I'd be like, what is this movie? I bet it's awesome. And then I, ha- I, I feel like I had to learn three separate times over a long span of time that, oh, it's just a talking heads concert film i I don't really see how that's going to end up being life-changing for me (laughs) or you know like the way you'd hear people talk about it and so i was like oh all right well uh but i finally i forget what finally convinced me something i read i think on the dissolve the actual website when they were doing their thing about true stories i'm finally like okay like if this really is supposed to be like a five-star amazing basket like i'll give it a whirl and by about the time a song that I'd said I didn't like, Burning Down the House, came on, not only was I in love with that song, it was like, oh, this is going to be a band I'm obsessed with going forward. Uh, and that stayed throughout the concert film. Uh, and then I immediately, you know, I was, it was, I, I think I bought the, all the other albums on iTunes because it was qu- not quite when I switched over to Spotify <laughs> yet. And, you know, just started listening to as much as I could. Um, and I do feel like it is, you know, I, I mentioned those bands that I still consider like favorite bands. And there's other ones in that list, right? There's there's the Animal Collectives and stuff like that. The type of bands that you make 40-track playlists of just, here's all my favorite songs of them right now. Because there's that much to pull from. And, like, it's so great that there's Spotify or iTunes because I, 
I could never fit all of my best ofs on CDs anyways. And I do feel like Talking Heads is the maybe one of the only bands in the last six years that's hit me that way. Where I needed to listen to all, it was right. It was because a hundred percent of stop making sense. There was something about watching it, which we'll talk more about. That was like, oh, I get all of this now. I get why people like it. It had a whole different energy than than even songs I liked, like Once in a Lifetime. I just had a whole new sense of like the meaning and the feeling behind it. You know, there's bands that I've discovered in the past five or six years that I feel like have an album or two total that I end up really liking. But I really think, like, if I was to do a top favorite bands of all time, Talking Heads would be on that list. But it is something that, um, that like, just took me a while to kind of get it. Um, and I remember Rick Kelly, former guest of the show, I was talking about whenever I watched the, the movie, I was talking about how that kind of, like, uh, even songs I had said that I didn't like, like Burning Down the House, I was like, this is one of my favorite things ever, and it's a great part of the movie. And he's like, yeah, that happens when people see that movie. Like, apparently that is very much a whatever that ineffable feeling of, oh, I get this now, that shifted my perspective on Talking Heads. Uh, but I am apparently not the first person that's felt that way after seeing Stop Making Sense, but I do think when we're talking about the idea of musicals and musical inspiring people and stuff like that. The idea that like this concert film is so good and there was something about it that uh, really just just changes your perspective on a band um, or uh, inspires people to, to love it. And the last thing I'll say, because I know I've been talking for a little bit, somewhere at one point, speaking of moms and talking heads... I had uh, my mom was over with some of my other family members when we were playing a game. And I, again, instead of putting on a playlist, I put on Stop Making Sense for background noise. And my mom was like, who is this? And I'm like, it's like it's talking heads. Like she's like, I've never heard of them before. And I was like, yeah, it's because you weren't cool enough. And, and this is I swear to God what she said. That's swear to God. This is what she said to me. Cool enough. Aaron. I went to a Kiss concert, (laughs) 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 which feels like, oh, I thought you were trying to refute my point, not underline and circle it. That's so good. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I so I carry I like I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Not that you would. They need to become an obsession or something like that. But now that you have seen this and now you've also watched American Utopia, which we'll talk about. True stories, which we all watched or rewatched, but are going to save because I feel like that's a good future episode for us. I do. And you liked all those. I do see like in five years, all of a sudden you're like, maybe I'll just listen to Talking Heads for a few weeks because it happens. It's it's easy for it to happen. Oh, yeah. And and I think, you know, when you're talking about your history with, with different bands, I I'm thinking about how. For whatever reason, I've always been a little bit more of a solo artist person. I've always been drawn more towards individuals rather than bands. And like my my favorite artist is Leonard Cohen. He actually has a very good underseen concert documentary, um, Leonard Cohen, Bird on a Wire, that I highly recommend. I believe that stars Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn. <laughs> There's a movie called Bird on a Wire that starts. Is there real? Is there really? Yeah, that's so offensive. Sorry, um, man, Bird on a Wire is also one of my favorite songs ever. Oh yeah, um, it can take me from like it can give me a smile to make me cry in like 45 seconds. 
Yeah, this is this is this was a film that was uh it it's not a single concert, but it's covering a tour that he did in Europe in the seventies. Um Got it. And it's gorgeous. I haven't seen it. But that. so it's it's I highly recommend it. Um but so I mean I loved Stop Making Sense. It was I was it was great to finally see it. But it was seeing American Utopia that made me go, Oh, I get it now. Because for some reason I wasn't quite getting the hook of like who are these people as artists from stop making sense and then seeing american utopia was somehow because it was because it's so driven by it i mean peter when we were chatting earlier pointed out that all of stop making sense is obviously very driven by david byrne but in it if to the untrained eye in perhaps less obvious ways so yeah. for an intro i found american utopia a better way into starting to understand him as an artist in a more specific sense that now i think if i go back and watch stop making sense again more of that is going to click for me that time yeah, because uh, basically, like, uh, with with America Utopia, like, with Stop Making Sense, you're like, I want to join whatever fucking party the Talking Heads are throwing right now. And, sure. And, and the, the movie is a party, because it's the four core members of the Talking Heads, and I'll do a brief history on the Talking Heads in, like, 60 seconds. Um, but, um, it, not right now, but in 60 seconds. Uh, but, uh... <laughs> that that makes you want to join that party it was the four core members plus alex weir was guesting on guitars and um they had steve scales was also guesting on guitars like some guys that were kind of you know as like touring musicians like fairly well respected but like most importantly and the guest players bernie worrell was on keyboards who was one of the founding members of parliament funkadelic so like you just imagine all these guys, plus their singers, dash, um, their backup singers, dash dancers, uh, Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt, throwing this big fucking party and they're smiling at each other and they're bouncing. And you see moments where like Jerry Harrison is trying to keep up with, um, <laughs> with, with um, Edna. Like he's trying to do the moves and play guitar at the same time yeah. and he can't. Cl- yeah. Like, that's, and that stuff is so adorable and fun and they're all just smiling and laughing at each other, but still hitting their marks in like a, a strangely, like beautifully precise, imprecise way. And like, but like America Utopia is David Byrne speaking to you directly in all of his awkward foibles, in all of his, his strangeness, um, in a way that like is very weirdly raw considering at the time he was making stop making sense all of his interviews were specifically from a sort of art school background he wanted an abstraction he didn't want to be a person he wanted to be a figure Mm -hmm. and you know uh while that's very fun i'm glad that we both have early david byrne (laughs) doing these strange interviews and we have late david byrne being like talking openly about the fact that he is on the autism spectrum similar to the way that like we have early david bowie interviews where he's just being an oddball and then like interviews in the 80s where he's like earnestly talking about how he cares about uh the hiv crisis yeah Yeah. like 
there's I'm, I'm not, I like getting both. I like these careers to go on long enough that people get both halves because like jumping back to what I said a minute ago, I like the provocation and the weirdness, but I also like the human sincerity because they both touch me in different different halves in my brain. I, I do quite a bit too. And like, I do think I'm so glad that we ended up, I mean, American Utopia was kind of on a catch up list for a long time. I definitely would have watched it before we recorded our best of 2020. Um, but I do feel like even though I, I consider myself a big fan for the last, you know, five, six years or whatever it is, this was like a missing piece of the puzzle when it comes to like, oh, I really like David Byrne and I like him, you know, because I, I feel like uh, and we'll probably get into this when you get into the history a little bit. Uh, um, but, you know, there's there's so so much of his personality is also tied into probably one of the most painful things and you know, tough things for outsiders to really have a say in, which is like the band breakup. Like he, he moved into a certain way artistically. He wanted more control. It's, you know, it's a classic, it's a classic band story. They didn't talk for a while. He started just giving them the songs they were writing as opposed to more collaboration. A lot of, you know, the other members in the band feel uh, slighted and hurt by a lot of that. Um, It is very reminiscent of one of my favorite bands, Pixies. Like, the way that like uh, Black Francis broke up with the band by fax, stop letting them write songs, you know, and then um, you know eventually like kind of came together a little bit. But it, it has that same like uh, it, it, it it almost as a story, it has almost the exact same arc that's really recognizable. And so you have a lot of the I feel like the sound bites of who David Byrne as a person is comes from a, a very particular perspective which is for people who did this art thing and there's egos and there's pushing and pulling and there's artistic direction and that even when they do the rock and hall rock and roll hall of fame thing right peter it's like a um yeah i i don't want to go do talking heads again i did that and you can understand where the rest of the band would be want to do that and feel hurt that he doesn't want to do that so i seeing him like just talk about like who he is as a person the way he thinks about humanity where his politics were and stuff like that um which we'll talk more about in that special was like, Oh, like I do feel like he's probably someone like, like everyone who's made mistakes and some of those close knit relationship, you know, in a working friendship and, and, um, you know, had a lot of weird feelings and, 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 and stuff associated with it. But I, I feel like I kind of had, had viewed him as like a, an amazing artist, but maybe not that great of a dude. And I, I, I don't know if American Utopia fully redeems that, but I feel like I have a better understanding of him as a person, and I and yeah. and which is yeah. which is rare for a concert um, film. And the last thing I'll say, Peter, because then I really want you to go to town because I know that you have been waiting your whole life to tell the history of the Talking Heads. <laughs> but you know, I I'll keep it short. I I. Uh, I actually don't want you to keep it short. That wasn't meant as a passive aggressive comment. <laughs> I, I'm excited. I am excited to hear this if we ever do a uh, Pixies or Beastie Boys or Clash somehow uh, show. Uh, you will hear me talk quite a bit. Uh, but I want to mention you mentioned the party aspect, and I just want to say you know as we're talking about why concert films don't work, I like especially before I had kids, I was one of those people that went to thirty or forty concerts a year, like. I would just look through First Avenue stuff here in Minneapolis, which is an amazing venue to see concerts in. And I, I had concert, I had like almost like specific concert friends that when a concert came up that I was even mildly interested in, I called them. I still go and see con- concerts before COVID, before I had kids, but obviously I'm not going to 40 in a year or something like that. It's like, you know, 
the three to ten that I'm most excited for tops. Um, and I am one of those people that I love going to concerts. I love being near the front. I love belting a, a, around all the songs with everyone else around you and just this kind of energy of strangers feeling like excited by the same thing in that, in that moment. Right. Like, and that's, that's why I like being near the front. It's not because I need the best view or something like that, or like, like moshing or something like that. Uh, but I find that like for the type of concerts that I go to, the, the people that know all the words to the songs are at the front. And that's like, that's kind of where I want to be at a concert, right? And I feel like that energy that just everyone's bouncing up and down. And it's not even really like dance moves. It's not anything. It's just it's just palpitations almost based on like how how the rhythm and the music and everything else gets going. And I I probably will be a, a weirdo 60-year-old doing that on, you know, with a with an ankle that doesn't work so well at some point in my life <laughs> because that's just like I that is I, the energy that comes from concerts is why I like going to them I hate when a concert venue has seats you know mm-hmm. I, I I just like it doesn't doesn't do the same thing and so like part of the reason that concert films were always so like blah to me is like sure I get to see Phil Collins play the song and that's cool but I'm never gonna have that energy that I feel going to a concert transfer to me at home and stop making sense is the only concert film I've ever seen. And it works every time where like, I almost like can't stop dancing in my living room just because or whatever, like, copying their dance moves or whatever else, just because the energy feels to emanate from the screen. And it feels like you're at that party. It feels like you're at that concert. And that feels like an impossible task for any concert film and I can understand, like, from that perspective, while people say, like, stop making sense of magical experience in the best concert film is because it's the only one that has ever made me go, like, this is basically as good as being at a concert. It's, it's oh, one of the yeah. only movies where I'm like, I can't watch this sitting. I need to stand. Yeah. Um, it's also one of the things where, like, I was I had friends over in my apartment a couple years ago. And, Sounds nice. And yeah, I, I miss it. Uh, I wish I hadn't taken it for granted. Um, and we were listening to the vinyl of Stop Making Sense. And then uh, my friend uh, and I were like, she was like, oh my God, I want to watch the documentary, but I haven't seen it forever. And like, they don't have a TV. And they were like, I just want to like watch it again. And I was like, I own Stop Making Sense. Do you want to watch it? And then all of us just sat down. Yeah. Like I, a party stopped dead to watch Stop Making Sense and then the party came back to life with all of us watching a documentary around the TV. Like, oh, yeah. when has that happened? Yeah. Like, it wasn't like us sitting, like, quietly on the couch. Like, all of a sudden, all of us were stand. We sat down for, like, a minute. And then there- more drinks were served. And then we were we were all standing up in my crowded-ass house. Like, it was, it was it's like a genuinely warm, fuzzy memory that I have uh, in, in a, just a... A slew of of warm fuzzy memories I have for Talking Heads. So let's start. Uh, yeah, you, Aaron, you started at the breakup. Let's talk. Let's talk about the breakup really quickly. Um, so yeah, uh, and uh, let's start at the breakup. I'll go to the beginning, and then we'll come back to the breakup. So they broke up in 1991. Essentially, David Byrne announced in the LA Times that uh, the band that he was leaving the band, which for the other members, the other three members, that essentially meant the band was over. So he was essentially, uh, David Byrne was essentially, uh, they stopped touring after the Stop Making Sense tour, which was there to promote Speaking in Tongues. It was there to promote Tom Tom Club. Um, David Byrne was also working on the soundtrack to something called The Catherine Wheel, 
Um, one of his weird side projects that people don't talk about. Um, some really good David Byrne songs on the soundtrack. Um, but uh, essentially, yeah, they were trying to head off. He was trying to head off questions like, what's the next thing for the Talking Heads? When are you going to do a big, massive tour? When's the next huge album? Because some of their their previous works, particularly the album release for True Stories, were, were kind of just like they were accompanying David Byrne's side projects. Yeah. Right. Um, like uh, 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 Naked, um, which is a great latin music inspired pop album was sort of in accompaniment to ray momo which was his latin music inspired album which has like song title and then what style he's trying to to what world music style he's trying to get into um and i think that speaks to where david byrne is headed at the end of this is like david byrne is reaching out to to all styles and trying to approach them with dignity Mm-hmm. Um, it, it goes well beyond what Paul Simon did with um, Graceland uh, and, and uh, Lady Black Mambazo. Like it, 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 it goes well beyond that. Um, so let's jump back to the beginning. Who are these guys? David Byrne is a Scottish immigrant, which he talks about in America Utopia briefly. Um, he lived in Maryland, and then he ended up at the Rhode Island School of Design. Where uh, a few of his other team members, team members, a few of his other uh, Talking Heads members attended. Then they ended up moving to New York um, and they needed to start a band. And there's there's sort of different versions of this story in this era. But like one of them is essentially that um, they, were, they were all too weird to find more band members. Like people didn't want to make their, their music with them. Um, and they uh, so they needed a bassist. So they convinced Tina Weymouth to join the band who was at the time a uh, drummer uh, and keyboardist, uh, Chris France's girlfriend. Um, they needed Tina Weymouth to, to join the band because they needed a bassist and she was, you know, a little bit interested, which is just such a funny story. Cause like they, they were like, we need a bassist. You're hanging out with us all the time. <laughs> um, like we think about this as such a precise band, right? Like this, like this, this uh, powerhouse band, but like at the beginning, it was just some uh, some Rhode Island School of Design art dorks that like just had a buddy sitting around, and they were like, "I'm going to teach you how to play bass." So David and Chris taught Tina how to play bass. Uh, they met Jerry Harrison, um, who uh, plays guitar for them, um, and uh, pretty quickly Tina and Chris get married. So yeah, uh, same same year that in 70, 77, right? In 77 yeah. to 78, like right as so, their album comes out. Yeah. So they used to play like the New York spots that you would think of. Like they played CBGBs. They opened for the Ramones once, right? Like yeah. They, they played a lot of cool, like a lot of cool venues at a time that um, they played a lot of cool venues at a time that like I think is very much idolized by um you know, new wave uh, people, by punk people, by metal people, like an era of New York where like, you know, Blondie just lived two blocks down the street from uh, the Talking Heads. Like it's just a very strange, strange time. Um, So they they start working on 77, um, which is their debut album, which came out in 1977. Um, And that has a big radio hit in it, Psycho Killer. Um, Then they put out um, what is it? More buildings about yeah. uh, more songs about buildings. buildings and food. Yeah. And uh, that I think is so 77 is obviously a great album, but I think like it's like uh, half songs... a great album, right? Like it is. It, yeah, it's it's a first album with filler, which is fair, especially in yeah. 77 where like no one cared about that. 
but it's such a, it, it's not it's not quite the announcement that like more songs about buildings and food yeah. is where like more songs about buildings and food has like thank you for sending me an angel on it and like it it has a cover of take me to the of Al, Al Green's take me to the river like and and the the biggest point here is that they're because now their first album was a success this is this is their production value stepping up this is this is where David Byrne is starting to get I don't want to say cocky, but he's getting confident. He's starting to play around more with with sound production and like uh, having certain song sa- certain sounds sound really flat and certain sounds sound really echoey and like it sounds more like a Talking Head song where like it's lightly experimental, but it's still a fucking it has the bones of an expert pop song, right? Um, then they buddy up with Brian Eno, who is uh, I would say Talking Heads are my favorite band, and then Brian Eno is like my you know second or third old sourpuss. No, sorry, <laughs> old sourpuss Brian Eno. Sorry, it's a different podcast. Yeah, um, uh, Brian Eno pairs up with them on Fear of Music and Remain in Light, and that's when their music starts to really sound like that. It starts with they really get the like art music vibe. Um, Remain in Light sounds like, you know, it could be someone's first. Album. Oh, yeah. Remain Cross Light and Punchless so is like, yeah. Cross Light and Punchless sounds like it's like, they're like, we didn't, we weren't a pop, we weren't a punk band, but we, you know, we kind of wanted to be a punk band. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like wilder and less controlled than their later stuff. Um, so they, they, they we'll talk about more Brian Eno later, but you know, he, he becomes a producer for a little bit with them. David Byrne starts working on, uh, a, uh, collaboration with him, uh, My Life in the Bush and Ghost, which is like one of the most important electronica albums of all time. Highly influential for how it covers sampling. Well, and, and, and also worth noting at that at that moment, uh, two of the members, Chris Franz and Tina, formed the Tom Tom Club. Yes. Um, so the Tom Tom Club is like their sort of experimental side project. And this is also, this is showing that like, just because these guys all knew each other when they were kids doesn't mean that they're necessarily uh, t- t- tightly bound to each other though i think chris france and tina weymouth and jerry harrison all kind of saw like talking heads is the home we always come back home and david Byrne is like talking heads is a vehicle to push us all forward and yeah the vehicle stop mm-hmm. serving me i am done with this vehicle can i just really quickly i know this is unrelated but it's so weird how much the story mirrors the uh, pixies because um not only do you have like Again, uh, Black Francis wanting to move the band forward and taking more and more control and going out and doing other weird stuff. You had uh, one of the band members. They met at University of uh, Massachusetts. uh, And they were, again, they all, some of them didn't play instruments, but no one else wanted to hang out with them. And they decided to form a band, which is very reminiscent of Talking Heads. Where it gets super weird is that as they start getting successful in collaboration, uh, Kim Deal goes and makes a side project with her sister, the Breeders. The Breeders? The Breeders. The breeders is so good. Which starts pissing off Black Francis. And, um, and it, like, in a, in a very, like, kind of just jealous way. Like, jealous that she's able to do this. Um, do you know who one of the writers on all the songs on Tom Tom Club was? Their album? <laughs> uh, no. Tina's sister? Oh, that's funny. And also that, uh, and also that, uh, uh, I've heard, I've read some things that like David Byrne was very reluctant about including Tom Tom Club and a little bit jealous because on their first album, they had two number one. They weren't, uh, at that point, I believe, uh, their song charted higher than any, uh, Genius of Love charted higher than any, um, 
Talking Head song at the time, it would eventually be beat by Burning Down the House, but they bo- they had two songs on that album that hit number one on the dance charts as well. So, and, and this is wow. also notable. This is one of the biggest bands of all time. This is a tight time period. This Very tight. Yes, this is, se- this is like I mean seventy seven to to eighty four essentially like when they oh, stopped sorry, I'm talking about uh oh. just the whole band's life is so tight oh yeah because right? um their yeah. first album genius of, i mean that i'm sorry i'm i can't believe i'm blanking on the name but that album comes out in 81 i think it might just be called the tom tom club yeah uh, but yeah that i i remember david byrne being like kind of annoyed that his two side members that were contributors to his band from his perspective where i've read and again, I don't know if this is like Tina and Chris being like, this was our perception of it, but they go do a side band. It has a no- number 17 song on the Billboard charts, which was huge for like, they didn't, you know, their number, their uh, uh, Burning Down House got to 10, but that wasn't until two years later. Um, I think their highest one, Psycho Killer at that point had been like 48 or something. Um, and then also have two number one like dance hits and their album sells more than any Talking Heads album. Even though Talking Heads albums were surprisingly <laughs> successful. D- the one thing where Pixies and the Talking Heads narrative diverges is that Talking Heads was a huge fucking band that's, that sold multi-platinum albums, which is still very like, as I look back, I'm like, how are they so big? It just feels like the type of thing that ends up being like art rock college niche stuff. Yeah, it feels like like once in a lifetime in particular feels like uh, a song that's that's like a one hit wonder for sure, right? Like that's that would be and usually you go back and look at these one hit wonders and like they would get so discouraged that you know, the rest of their music didn't take off that they make like two albums, right? This was like they were they were they were they weren't necessarily radio topping, but they were like booking gigs through the late seventies into their, and then they were becoming a massive band. And on the, the crux of when this was released, because it was released to promote speaking in tongues, they were on the crux of becoming like a huge, huge band where people would all of yeah. a sudden become like rabid for new talking head stuff. Right. Yeah. And so, burning down the house goes to number 10. I mean, and, and uh, this must be the place I think is it gets to the thirties. Like they're starting to be radio hits too. Yeah. And, and so a good accompaniment after Remain in Light is talk about uh, the name of this band is the talking. The name of this band is Talking Heads, um, which is another thing that's sort of like we, we don't cover albums generally on here. But um, uh, it's, it's a good accompaniment to stop making sense because. Well, and hold on. You, they did Fear of mu- fear uh, of Music in between, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, I touched on that because okay. uh, Brian Eno. So, yeah, Brian Eno produced Fear of Music and uh, Remain in Light. Um and so a lot of, uh, you know, the the name of this band is The Talking Heads, a live album they made in 82, and then Stop Making Sense, which was, uh, you know, a documentary they made with Jonathan Demi. This is our first Demi, right? It's our first David Demi. Silent and Lambs. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, uh, we haven't done Blow from his son. Um, <laughs> Ted Demi's his brother. never done Rachel getting married? Hold on. I can't Ted, believe it. Ted Demi's his brother, Peter. No, isn't Ted Demi his son? No. Ted Demi. I had relatives. Uncle. We're both wrong. Oh. Okay. Ted Demi's his uncle? Demi. Or, or no. Do you think Jonathan, Jonathan Demi? Demi uncle. Okay, okay. I thought he was his son. Um, we can argue later about whether a brother or son is closer to uncle. I, I know this is, I know this is, hold on. I know this is really late, but I'm just learning that Ted Demi died in 2002. 
Yeah, he died of, uh, he was doing cocaine at a basketball, like a pickup basketball game or something, and he had a heart attack. I somehow did not know he was dead, so that's sad. He was, the guy who made Blow died of cocaine, basically. Wow. I remember Weird. Blow. Yeah, we, we, that's the last time we'll be talking about it, probably. Um, but okay, so um, oh, so the name of this band is the talk is talking has is a good accompaniment to Stop Making Sense because that came out in '82, and then um, Stop Making Sense was filmed in '83. Uh, like I said, in promotion of Speaking in Tongues, and so both of them are kind of capturing what their music was thus, and um, you know they put out uh, I would say two more great albums. Um, you know, not counting, stop, stop talking, stop making sense. Um, two more great studio albums uh, in Little Creatures and Naked after this. But this is really like Talking Heads at their 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 peak of both coolness and approachability. And this was when like America was ready for the weirdness of David Byrne the most. And then, um, you know, Little Creatures and Naked both had had uh, big chart songs. Um, Naked did no, uh, nothing but flowers. Uh, was, it was a chart uh, song, but Little Creatures had like "And She Was" and "Road to Nowhere," which didn't hit. Yeah. Burning down the house, and then True Stories had "Wild uh, Wild Wild Life." Um, I thought Naked was while it's like a gold selling record. I didn't think it had any huge chart toppers. Yeah, but nothing but flowers is a hit, and that's like a song he continues to play live. Right? Yeah, like mm-hmm. there's a reason he continues to play live because people are super attached to nothing but flowers. Um, but yeah. Um, the, 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 re- this, this is kind of this and, uh, the, the, the other live album are kind of capturing like them at the peak of their powers. And then there is no live album. There's no more live albums because they stopped touring live. Um, David yeah, I didn't know that until doing research this, for this time. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I didn't know until doing research for this, that like they didn't tour for little creatures, which is extremely surprising for me. I mean. Like, they never played Road to Nowhere as a band or And She Was or these other, like, huge hits live. Yeah, that's yeah. really odd. Yeah, and what's funny is, like, I, I've seen David Byrne live uh, once. Uh, it was on his tour for Love This Giant, which was his album he did with St. Vincent, who's another one of my favorite favorites. So it was very cool, kind of. Um, really good album. Yeah, really fun album. And uh, it, it speaks to the fact that, like, David Byrne was hungry to just, like, find new collaborators yeah. at this point, right? Like, he started working with this guy, Robert Wilson, um, who does, like, sort of classical compositions. He started working on this, like, um, ballet called The Catherine Wheel, which some of the songs uh, are, are in um, in uh, this. Um, and he wrote really 21 songs inspired by Big Love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's weird shit in there he did it that album got good called... reviews no I, but yeah i was mentioning it on, uh, on on text last night but that album is 21 songs long it's 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 wild the amount of songs that he put out and also a lot of these songs are kind of buried because like um he did a collaboration with arcade fire for yeah. the suburbs on the deluxe edition of uh the suburbs and call a song called speaking in tongues that is like a b-side of a b-side like it's not on i have the vinyl of uh most of these albums we're talking about <laughs> it's not on the vinyl for the suburbs like that got buried he did a song with Ten Thousand maniacs that didn't end up making it on the album but you listen to it you're like, this is great this is better than anything on the album why would he, you and there's a there's Burns a b-side with uh dirty projectors that's really good too uh natty pine that's yes so good. yes this song's great um i believe that was for a aids uh benefit oh that's what it was yeah uh, Dark was the night. 
Um, so yeah, he's he's venturing out over the next chunk of his career, the next 30 years. He's going to start venturing out like crazy. Ray Momo came out uh, a little bit before uh, a little bit before they broke up in 89 and then the year that they break up in 91. Uh he puts out an album called The Forest that I want to talk about very briefly. And that's because this is this is the story of David Byrne to me. Like being willing to give you the uh, uh, you know pop sensibility that you want, willing to give you like songs you can fucking dance to, um, but also like sort of like blindly jumping into an artistic pursuit that doesn't feel like it's well timed to when people expect him to drop it because the forest is an album that. He's, it's an orchestral opera-like piece that apparently is inspired by the Epic of Gilgamesh. And there's he sings on it, but it's he sings uh, long vocal cues. He doesn't sing words on the album. There's a song called Err that's like a 13-minute song. I find very beautiful. Um, it's not really well-respected. This whole album, The Forest, is not really well-respected. Um, and then there's a song, like two tracks later, called Dura Europis that like, oh, this is a song with verses. Um, and he, uh, has a guest singer who was trying to figure out who the, the vocal singer was because she has a very pretty voice, but, um, there's a, there's a woman singing on that song. Like, well, why didn't David Byrne sing that song? He just wrote the lyrics and he uh, composed the, you know, the composition. And he was like, nope, I want this person to sing the song. Like the year that he breaks up this huge band, this beloved band that everyone loves, he drops something like the forest, which is a strange side project that's that's a, a, you know an orchestral operatic piece it's 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 like 59 minutes like it's not like a 30 minute little ep side thing like this was something he spent a lot of fucking time on and like this is when david burns sort of becomes someone who like um i think gets very frustrated with his own sense of fame because he wants to have the big audience but also like he wants to do weird shit. He wants to venture yeah. out. He wants to he wants to have stuff that he doesn't sing, you know, um kooky talking heads lyrics about you know, consumerism versus anti-consumerism. Like he wants to go on. And like he would he would jump back to in I feel like feelings and grown backwards so 97 2004 is like when he's like, "All right, I'm going to go back to a little bit what you liked about talking heads, but I'm going to sing like sincere ass beautiful music." um as well like i'm gonna keep doing my my weird stuff but i'm gonna try and strike a balance and then from you know 2004 and grown backwards um who has a big song um was it glass concrete and stone which is in america utopia from that onwards um we don't need to touch on every single fucking album because david byrne has a lot of fucking music he collaborates with all people like fat boy slim and arcade fire and fiery furnaces and and he does a big love soundtrack and he's kind of is trying to again strike that balance between like i want to you know like i like being a pop singer but also like i i'm a composer that has a deep understanding of how music works and i would like to experiment in that form as well so yeah i think with that uh let's let's stop making sense and just cut it out. Make some flippy floppy. We'll make a little flippy floppy. A okay. little. It's getting late. Okay. Not too but much flippy floppy. Just enough. Just enough right. to look back and go, what a day that was, flippy floppy wise. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to write about this in my flippy floppy journal. <laughs> Watch out.
note, I don't think we want to do alternate taglines, but I but I do want to do this, Peter. The the there's a part there's an imagined scenario when stop making sense when like people went to see it in 1984 that reminds me a lot of like the that's chappy situation and i imagine there were those fucking music and film bros that were the worst back then too and i'm sure a lot of them as they went to go take their friends to stop making sense went you know i know what that uh the title means because i uh it's from the song <laughs> girlfriend <laughs> better so like i know why i do you want to know why they named it Stop Making Sense? Like, I I just imagine that person existing thousands of times and and setting up uh, all the people that they brought to uh, to see it in a very, like, fuck this guy. Or, uh, it's probably a guy. But um, fuck this person who is, who is already being condescending about a, a band I don't know well that I'm going to see with them. Yeah. <laughs> uh- I signed up for this this journey with you, and uh, now I'm getting pummeled uh, with your condescension. Thank you very much. That's why I do think that joke about, like, that's Chappie is this weird, um, like, it's a very funny joke because it's the movie Chappie, but I also think it's very insightful in, like, a certain type of person who would feel the need to go, <laughs> I know film so much that I just want you to know I'm aware that that's Chappie. And I assume that you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> so I need to tell you that. Like, that's a, that's a, obviously a hyperbolic version of it, but I feel like it, it speaks to uh, a reality that uh, a lot of we exist in. Very much. Yeah. And very that's, that's much actually, so. That's, that's actually probably a good place to start with stopping the sense, because, like, what does the title mean? Um, ultimately, it means nothing. But also, it is very insightful to what the movie is. Um, the yeah, let's do a plot recap. D- David Byrne was super into David Byrne was super into the idea that our language itself could be um, co-opted, twisted, changed by outside uh, forces, and also that language is inherently meaningless. It only has the value we assign to it. So that's the second half of it, right? Like monsters can can make our our language into a weapon, but also like language itself doesn't mean anything. And absurdism can have a point because absurdism can give you perspective. And so like when we're talking about our interpretations of of Talking Heads songs, uh, sometimes it's kind of obvious what they're going at. Like uh, I think Nothing But Flowers is like a pretty straightforward song. Psycho Killer is, in my mind, a pretty straightforward song. Um, But and that's, you know, from their last album, their their first album. Um, but, uh, 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 like, when we're talking about, like, what these songs mean to us and all that, like, it's gonna be a little tough for us to discuss because sometimes David Byrne would go into the studio and just fucking improvise and riff. And also, jumping back to Brian Eno, he was buddies with Brian Eno, um, who, uh, encouraged him actively to, like, your lyrics should just be a splash of images, an LSD trip. Your 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 lyrics should not be some sort of ballad, because uh, that's not how pop music is written. You want uh, uh, songs that uh, lyrics that resonate, um, but it doesn't need to tie together all nicely and neatly. And this is sort of like uh, asterisk, asterisk. But like Brian Eno is one of my favorite musicians, and one of my favorite things about Brian Eno is write down the lyrics or you know go read the lyrics to a Brian Eno song. And you're going to be like, the song's about a hitman, I think. 
And then you're like, maybe it's about a breakfast cereal. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's no, there's, there's no real way to, to parse it. And he did that on purpose because he wanted yeah. this sort of Dada should, should, should be a feeling. Too. Yes, yeah. he's trying to conjure a feeling, and also Brian Eno did that in a sort of Burroughs way, where he would like purposefully chop up lyrics and throw out stuff that he thought was too explanatory. Uh, but he would also do it in a way where he would take mescaline in a hotel room, and then <laughs> yeah. he doesn't remember writing all of "Babies on Fire" because of that. Well, and we we joked on a sidecast about like when bands get that wrong, it can be like it's almost a joke, like. Um, you know, uh, we talked about how much we like Yaysayer's Odd Blood on a side cast, and there's there's that song. I think it's Montegreen, where the where the refrain is just uh, "Be true to yourself," uh, and that's like, and everyone was kind of like, "All right, like the music rules, and the way you're singing it rules, and it rules, but be true to yourself." <laughs> like that's it's a little dorky. Right? It's it's it's, it's, do- it's like dorky, and not I think in a successfully dorky way. Uh, yeah. If if you zoom into the lyrics, and I think, you know, uh, that's I, – I, speaking of Brian Eno and his other band that he's so well associated with, I mean, part of the reason, like, that you two never connected with me, like, at all. I, 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 I hate to be – this to be the, the, the uh, episode where I just am like, look, I'm sorry. I just don't – I don't like you two at all. Um, and I think it's because they are very good musically in a lot of ways, but their lyrics are – fucking terrible like why didn't brian they're Eno? they're atro- they're atrocious across the board like the only song of theirs i like is sunday bloody sunday which is you know it's very obvious lyrics but it's a good retelling and the music fucking just completely rules on it but like i mean whenever i remember kids in my elementary school just freaking out about like um mysterious ways and i even at that age would listen to it like it's all right. It's all right. All right. She moves in mysterious. It's like, this is like, even I was, I mean, I'm not trying to be like, as a 10 year old, I was above it, but I was, I was just like, this is bad. I don't they're, like they're this. They're not very insightful lyrics. Yeah. And like, yeah. or like, it's a beautiful day to be with you. Great. <laughs> cool. Like, what am I taking from this beyond the, like, I, I don't need a successories uh, poster as a as a music lyric you know yeah i either want and, and that's ideally kind of my two di- my dichotomy right um is i either want this which is like nonsense but in a way that you can see your own truth in it the language doesn't inherently mean anything but the but the meaning that you assign right stop making sense yeah which i guess um, i mean or oh, sorry, the other side is uh john prine who's my one of my other favorite musicians like top five um who he sang songs that spoke to you know people at the lowest education level and people who went to ivy leagues and everybody in between and it would still and it would make anybody between there cry um because it was just like super super poignant sincere gorgeous beautiful music that like everybody could hear and and it could hit everybody in kind of the same way and like if you're gonna make sincere straightforward beautiful music you got like and you want it to like stick with me like my whole life where i'll remember it like i will always remember john prine lyrics and i will always remember uh talking heads lyrics because like 
<laughs> I, I think making flippy floppy just means sex, right? Or does it mean <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> wait a minute, a little bit, Joey? Um, no, and I actually think like why I mentioned Pixies and Clash so much is that like it's it's so obvious why lyrically the Talking Heads ultimately resonated with me when I cite those as two of my favorite bands of all time because the Pixies are very good at writing music that is all imagery that like Unshan and Alu. Yeah, like you don't need to they're they're like, you know, tie me around the cactus tree and stuff like what the fuck does that mean to Frank Black? But you might get something out of it each time. Like that you that you listen to it. It's not it's not, it's it's imagery, it's pictures, it's stuff like that. And then the clash is like music that I like and lyrics that I like that is mostly explicitly political, but not like in a super obvious I mean, it's it's not unobvious. But it's not like they're singing like racism is bad. They write songs like White Riot and stuff like that. That their approach to it is unconventional. Exactly. Right? And so when you when I when you hear Talking Heads, I do feel like Talking Heads is the like lyrically is the confluence of the Pixies lyrics and and Clash lyrics. Like they David Byrne has a lot to say about society, commercialism, you know, people and how they interact in the way that they. You know, the Clash did in a in a in a, uh, in a different way, and then they have a lot of just odd imagery that sticks with you but not in a specific way and what you think about it one day maybe something you think about it uh you you may think differently about another day like the like pixies does so as i as i got into talking heads like it was like oh this is two of my favorite things that has kind of merged into its own thing and it makes a lot of sense why it would resonate okay so uh running through what stop making sense was jonathan demi uh like the talking heads talking heads were seeking a director to give them a uh, a, a, a documentary this wasn't something that jonathan demi necessarily pitched as much as uh, david byrne was like i think we're ready for a a, a concert film um i think that we we're at a level of tightness and we've been we've been driving long enough like let's let's try and capture this and, and our show already like because i think as an artist too like my show has a lot of visual components that i'd like documented yes mm-hmm. exactly um and they had already done a live album uh two years before the release of of stop making sense uh they did they uh filmed it over four nights at the pantages theater in hollywood uh in 1983 uh, they were promoting speaking in tongues, tongues, which I've mentioned a few times before, but it's worth worth mentioning just like why a certain songs from later albums aren't in here. Like they hadn't recorded Wild Wildlife yet. Um, and they fundraised it themselves. One point two million dollars. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, Wiki- Wikipedia top level information about the, the documentary. Um, but what's amazing about it is that it starts in this super humble inauspicious way yeah. where it's just david byrne and a tape player playing psycho killer super stripped down he's right there and what he's going to do throughout the course is he's going to tell you the story of the band visually because it's going to be him just him uh playing his song which is from you know uh his album 77 their first album and then they're going to start adding people they're going to start adding players and then there's going to be this explosion for burning down the house, which is this is what the band is today. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a big fucking party like um, Alex Weir and Jerry Harrison, uh, Steve Scales on percussion. Um, you know, we've even side projects, uh, Bernie Worrell on keyboards so they can have like this live energy. Uh, Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt are their singers dash dancers. They have a similar sort of visual style, except for Chris France, 
I'm going to get there in a second, who decides to wear some, like, teal or turquoise polo. Um, and uh, the, the band is building outward, building outward. And then eventually, after burning down the house, all the players are there. And he starts to add a visual show, which is displaying words on the screen. Um, Wall Street, Ham Sandwich, Star Wars, whatever. And this is like them getting at their central thesis, which is like, these words mean nothing outside of context. Also, these words can mean nothing if we, we, we take the meaning away or they can mean everything if we apply meaning. Um, so uh, as the, 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 the band starts to get artsier, they also keep dance numbers going, right? Like, yeah. uh, they, there's mm-hmm. a, they, 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 throw a Tom Tom Club Genius of Love song in the middle, which is a, a very silly, fun pop song, right? Like, this is, like, it's a little bit experimental, but it's largely just, like, an amazing riff. Enough to the point that Mariah Carey sampled it and arguably made a better song. Um, mm. And... I, I, uh, like, I like Fantasy, but... That I song is so good. Fantasy's so good. Yeah. Um, it's so good. I'd rather listen to Fantasy just because the, the weird thing where Chris France is like, well, s- I- scatting like a scatting okay. like a monkey. That's <laughs> just kind of annoying. It oh, I agree. I, I I said I said to you guys in chat that that I I think the live version is faster and more energetic, and I like it um, more than the original, which I had heard many many times. I had that album. Um, but I will say, having listened to the studio version so many times, Chris Franz's vocals are are tone. Like, I never made out what he was saying until I heard the live version and then went back to the studio version. And I'm like, oh, he is saying all this shit in this, in the original <laughs> version. And I will say, as I said, like, I think there's a point where he recognizes how embarrassing what he's doing is. Um, and I've seen this movie enough at this point to feel like I, I, I don't know if he knows it's embarrassing or he feels like it's not working or it's taking away from the part of the song that it loves. But there's that part where in, and he says y'all way too much in general for the song, for an on country song, even probably too much like for a country drop song. a sick Twitter thread. Like just yelling James Brown a few times, I guess is fine. But then he's like, he still is the godfather of soul. So check him out. <laughs> Which is like a weird, like just a just a just a wreck in the middle of a song. Like, hey, oh, just I saw this movie last week. That's great, by the way. I know we're doing a, a song, but <laughs> you you guys see Heaven's Gate or what? What is it? <laughs> really good. Uh, anyways, feels good to me. <laughs> and I feel like there's that part where he does it, a laugh that you can tell is a sincere, like uh, feels good to me, and it's like. You didn't have to do this part in the live version when it's so much louder and clearer and so fucking awkward, dude. You're rooting. Like, I do. I love that version of the song. There is a part where, like, I embarrassingly and reflexively cringe in that way you feel for, like, someone who's who's embarrassed themselves that kind of realizes that you just want to be like, can you stop, please? Right at that line of just, uh, <laughs> he still is the godfather of soul, y'all, so check him out! <laughs> uh, <laughs> feels good to me. It's just like, oh my god, I'm sorry, bud. You wrote it. I don't know. You can change stuff for live version. That's a yeah. common thing, Chris. Alex Weir is riffing during the song. Do you think that he turned away from the stage to cringe a little bit? <laughs> I, I think, I think everyone that's the part that tina's <laughs> over there like dancing i think everyone's like 
it's it's too clear and crisp. Like it was fine when it was like buried in the mix, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. it's too it was it was it was tone and now it's become its background has become foreground and it's not working as well. And you wrote a bunch of shitty stuff. It sounds um, like they were half listening. The girls can do it too, y'all. Oh, thanks, Chris. Like David Byrne read four books about language shit, and then they they were half listening. And Chris France is like, "That just means I can say whatever I want." Yeah. the The other part that gets that is very cringy is the the girls can do it too, y'all. Like, what? Are you the announcer at a fucking strip club? Like, like what is it? It's not good. Um, I want to get back, though, Peter, really quick, which I think we all... Uh, I love the... Obviously, the opening's been talked about the way the stage gets built around them. It really gives the impression that they're their own opening band. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even though the songs they're playing are obviously well-known and hits, it really feels like, hey, the concert doesn't actually start until uh, Burning Down the House, which would be the type of song you would play. Most concerts start with it's, – it's kind of a, a classic formula, right? You start with a huge big hits that everyone likes. You get into deeper cuts. You start ramping up to more songs that everyone likes. Uh, you you leave on a huge note and then you come back and encore and play a couple those hits that you're like, oh, fuck, they're not going to play that. And, of course, then they come back and play that. And I think even though they're starting with songs that people know – they're starting them almost in a capacity where people are watching and you kind of get that sense as people are assembling stuff and the band seems more at that point interested in talking to themselves and playing to the se- to themselves in the same way an opening band does like the audience is milling around some people are focused not everyone's fully engaged because you're like yeah i like this but you know half the time or more than that i'm actually just like waiting for them to get off the stage and it does give that same sense and again this i promise this will be the last time i mention the comparisons uh but it did remind me when the first time i saw the uh, pixies they played doolittle in their entirety and they didn't have an opening band they came out first and played all of their b-sides to doolittle in that era With the lights on and a little more just like people were super into it, but it wasn't the big stuff yet. And it didn't have the production value components and everything else. And they were more talky and jokey during it and stuff like that. And that that was uh, such a weird moment for me. Like, oh, you're you're doing your own opening band. You're getting people excited for Doolittle by playing Doolittle related stuff that some people would be aware of. And this felt like the same even though the songs are more well-known, I assume, to people at a Talking Heads concert, um, it feels like the same type of energy, and it's the only two times I've ever seen or heard of anything like that. It, it, it is kind of it is kind of lovely how it builds, because it feels like you're seeing multiple bands, right? Like, yeah. It, because they had, even though this is only, you know, two-thirds of the In multiple of suits. Career, they had essentially had multiple lives at this point, right? They went from, like, precise, cool art rock band to like uh wild experimental band in like two albums like they 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 did they took steps forward steps back like that at this point like they they were they, this this is sort of playing to all their sensibilities right because by the time they get to once in a lifetime and david byrne has slicked back his hair he has uh the glasses on he's sort of emulating um Sort of emulating Tent revival uh, a visual technique yeah. from the music video. Yeah. Um, he's doing these like electric shocks in his body while he's he's singing and dancing and 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 running around. Um, 
during life during wartime, like he is he is becoming a full visual performance in and of himself that ties together all the different eras in a way that like doesn't make it it, it, it ties to get all the eras in the sense where you're like, OK, this is just one band. We're all at one party. But this one band is almost like pretending to be two other bands. So, Carrie, having just seen this recently for the first time, did you know that like it started with such a um, austere stage and like the way to send like what was your take on all that? All I knew about this movie was the giant suit. And then the suit is only there for like ten minutes, if that. Yeah. And I was like, "This is I, this is a very different movie than I was expecting." I didn't know anything about how it starts. I loved how it started. I was like, I was fascinated by the fact that it was so stripped down. Quickly caught on what they were doing because you know they're building and building over a couple of songs. Um, and what I noticed was the way it the way it's shot is very immersive. Um, like as a, I feel like as a concert doc, I'm used to uh, docs that show kind of a little bit more like of a stagey camera setup. Yeah, where it's trying to get you into the feel of being an audience member, and this is more like you are on stage with them moving around with them the entire time and you're seeing all of the new setups for all of the new people coming out on stage and all of the people getting their gear out and that immersion felt very exciting that like you know i'm seeing i'm seeing how this is being put together as it's being put together and that is making me feel excited to be here. I didn't know that that's how it started either when I saw it, too. And, like, as you realize, they literally are adding a band member a song and then uh, all of the all of the non-core uh, non, uh, band members or whatever as it keeps going and then it gets darker. I feel like there's a point where – it reminds me a little bit of Texas Chainsaw Massacre where one, one thing I really like about that movie – is that it starts out in such broad daylight and then all of a sudden it's pitch black. And because you're so absorbed in what's going on, you're not actually like noticing the change, right? Um, it, it feels like if you, if you think back to the last hour that you've seen, you're like, oh, wait, it's it's completely nighttime. Last time I was conscious of like what this looked like, it was bright lights. And I feel like that has a sense here. Like you are very aware that people are being added and drums are being rolled out and, and stuff like that. But I feel like all of a sudden when burning down the house specifically hits and everyone's on stage and the stage is dark and all of a sudden you're like, oh, when did this become a full concert? Like it, mm-hmm. it's very um, – the way it sneaks up on you is really incredible. Yeah. And you sort of assume – you sort of assume that it's going to go in a certain direction. But the way that they execute it and the way that they make it feel – like you're a part of it is yeah that's that's what got me so hooked there's also something that other people have written about um and i but it was definitely something i noticed and it was something i i noticed also repeated in american utopia that even though obviously the talking heads themselves are for 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 white people that there is a sense of like I mean, uh, there are so many like people of color and people from different backgrounds, and that that's that that happens with American Utopia. The idea of like 
a stage of people that represents a more cultural melting pot than just, um, you know, than just just white people or something like that. And that's not something that, you know, um, someone who was a contemporary of when this movie came out, I read a review and talked about how, like, uh, surprising and shocking that was. This did come out in 1984. The idea that, um, you know, which is definitely not a time that racism was cured any more than 2020, but the idea of, like, this many people of color um, not from a not coming from a place of like tokenism, but really just like uh, embracing this huge thing. And then of, to Pierre's earlier point, the way that everyone interacts with such camaraderie and love and stuff like that just gives a sense of a of a of a party that you want to be at. Not just because it, it has really good music, but it feels like it's it has a level of acceptance that definitely wasn't and still isn't present in our culture as a whole. Yeah, and I want to I want to jump on that really quickly because like that's where I want to talk about Byrne as like a visual figure, um, and as a performative figure because Byrne is somehow both a outsider and a cipher because he's a he's a outsider in the sense that he's incredibly weird. He's playing up the weirdness. Like there's a, there's a he puts on the big strange suit and he dances and he he does this this uh strange sort of um undulating uh dance move with his arms to make the suit vibrate underneath him um he's incredibly skinny which adds this contrast where his head is very small um i mean if he's dancing that much on stage and doing laps every night like i'm not surprised that he has like no ounce of (laughs) addendum here addendum here uh all of them were doing had had done cocaine or were doing cocaine or whatever but like apparently david byrne tried cocaine a couple times and didn't really like it um and then largely you know didn't didn't fuck around with it so it's very interesting to think that like in this band the drummer and the keyboardist might have been more keyed up than david byrne who is in a a 4XL suit with blown out shoulders and undulating on stage and then literally running laps during life during wartime. Like, uh, th- that that guy maybe, like, wasn't on any drugs, possibly? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, get that the, I get that the drummer was to the point, again, he's just shouting out music wrecks in the middle of his lyrics. So. <laughs> <laughs> you guys want to come over to my house later? I got some great records. We can all hang. You guys like the only like the shooting only hoops. For Chris Fran- the only argument for Chris Francis' sobriety is that he looks embarrassed at any point during that. Yeah, <laughs> people on coke don't look embarrassed. Um, that's all I want to say about drugs because we don't actually know. And the band, yeah, apparently. I mean, everything I've heard it, about so David it's... Byrne is that he was de- he was he was not someone who was imbibing yeah. that much. So, um, but he is, but he is an outsider and yet a cipher because he was someone who, and later admitted he was uh, on the autism spectrum, and you know came came out and discussed that in a few different interviews. Um, and also, he felt like an outsider because of his his parents being, you know, first generation immigrants. Um, but also, here's the thing that's funny: like he he was the head of a rock band in the '80s, and he wasn't really sexual. He was like sex almost. I wouldn't say sexually ambiguous because that would imply like a um, a gender fluidity. He was sort of like uh, sexually irrelevant. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And like, it, it, it feels like he wasn't, he was never trying to be sexy because he was also never trying to be cool. And usually with rock music, being sexy is a byproduct of, of being cool, right? You're supposed to be alluring, godlike, a modern, yeah, a modern god. Anybody that has sex with this person should, you know, feel grateful to be touched by their presence. But like, he doesn't have that image. He has that image like, I'm putting on an art show right now. I'm putting on a music show. I want to speak to your heart, not necessarily your junk. And so like, his his outsiderness speaks to like, I think from, you know, I'm speaking as a straight man, but like somebody who like, I'm bad at dancing and I'm a little awkward. Like I see myself in him and like I, I, I've heard stories of people who are asexual or bisexual seeing like this sort of outsiderness of, of his expression speaking to them. Like he's kind of universal in his oddness, but also you look at David Byrne and you're like, you're just a very strange fellow. Like you, you have a very strange way of expressing yourself. It's, it's obviously um, an affected way of, of expressing yourself in it to some capacity, but it's, it's, it's both like you can see yourself in him, but also like you get to kind of have a little chuckle. You're like, it's a very weird thing to do, David Byrne. I, I, I didn't get a sexless vibe from him, but I got the vibe that that's just, this just not where he's at. And it's not, it's not where the show was at. And like, it's, for that to just not even be part of the equation is kind of, it's fascinating and kind of liberating. Like to have a, to have a, to have a music space that doesn't have to be uh, filtered through the lens of intense sexuality like obviously there is a great time and place for that but it doesn't have to be an all the time thing and having this environment that is about all of these other things instead i i think that helps it stay as fun as it is because during during the talking heads he only wrote one song he admits is a love song well and that's in that and and the most sexual moment of the concert is when he dances with a lamp yeah, exactly. Yeah. This must be the place. <laughs> yeah. And and he joked in interviews, because in interviews he's very cagey about the meaning of his songs, which I think artists should be. I think artists should not be like, my movie means this. Um, unless you're making something that's like obvious, like very obvious and unsubtle. But like if you're making something that's not, it's not clearly a literalist message, like you should be like David Lynch, be like, fuck you, watch the movie. <laughs> I did like um, when everyone was like, what does The Last Jedi mean? And Ryan Johnson was like, oh, it's Luke. it was so funny (laughs) um but he he made a joke in an interview he's like uh with uh this must be the place that uh it's his only the only love song he ever wrote and it's about a lamp (laughs) 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 like that kind of adds to the 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 sort of uh i mean you can use different terminology i would say like uh like sexually irrelevant as i feel like the kind of terminology i'm getting comfortable with but like he's just unconcerned with being cool and he's also unconcerned with being sexy uh, so he's approaching something that's like more universal in his strangeness. Well, just in yeah. general, I think he just has a he has a he has a charisma that's really hard to pin down. Like I think, <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, I mean, there's obviously just a lot of visual charisma that he uh, does in this in this in this movie that makes a sense. But what was really surprising to me in American Utopia, like he has these monologues, right? And he's not particularly a good speaker and i don't mean that insultingly like he's he's not someone who uh you would think would get like they are almost like passionless 
awkward delivery that I can't quite parse in my own head while I while everything he was saying was so enrapturing and why I was so engaged. And even my wife, who wasn't like really paying attention to it too much, except for like certain songs that she knew, whenever he would speech uh, speech, whenever he would speech. <laughs> Whenever he would uh, give a monologue, she would kind of perk up and pay attention and, like, remark on, you know, uh, the thoughts there. And it's it's weird, like, you know, his 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 charisma in putting on a big suit, the, the, the way that uh, Stop Making Sense as a, like, a visual piece of art is so stunning and watchable, and, like, the way that he and the rest of the band moves to songs like you know there's almost no talking in stop making sense and so you can see like why that would be charismatic to watch as like a frontman performance in a in a band that's doing a lot of very interesting things when it's just him telling stories in american utopia like obviously it's david byrne and i'm engaged there but i do feel like even though his his way of telling the stories doesn't match anything i would identify as uh, something that's interesting to listen to. Um, it somehow is extremely engaging and extremely charismatic. In, in a way, even like the sentiments that are so basic in that movie, and I know I'm skipping ahead a little, but why the fuck not at this point? We're two hours and 15 minutes into this. Um, like there's there's that part where like he's like, just tells about his story as being a, an immigrant from, from Scotland. And he has a line, something along the lines of like, we're a country full of immigrants and we need them. Like that's such a simple sentiment. And the way that he just expresses that in his kind of like, uh, almost like mon- monotone is not the right word, but approaching monotone tone feels like a point of catharsis in a way that I, I don't know how to explain. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I forget who, but I saw someone on Letterboxd uh, say that he seems like someone who would be a fan of Joe Para. And I was yeah. like, yeah, that's exactly it. They're, God, they have that a, is fucking it exactly. They have such a similar vibe. Um, I th- and I, th- I think that that I think that that is probably why the reputation of him being a bit of an ass probably has gotten some traction even if he doesn't even if he hasn't done anything like super terrible because when you listen to him talk he sounds like the as like a very sweet gentle person who would not ever be horrible to or tactless to anybody you know mm-hmm. and like that it's very disarming it's very sweet and that was There's an innocence to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that was that was something that I felt was a little bit missing from the experience of stop making sense for me because I I was I think I was hoping for hearing from him and from the band like in between songs even just a little bit to try to get a sense of like. How do they describe their music? How do they... But very specifically, not during songs, Chris France. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then getting that and then getting that from American Utopia, that was the thing that helped make me see, like, I get who you are as a persona, and this is the way that people hook into you. This makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit... You mentioned the vinyl version already, although it may have been... I forget if that was... Off, off actual recording, 
But this this album that they made off of this was huge. Peter, do you mind if I talk about how all of the choices they made for this album are bad? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, uh, hold on. Give me two. Hold on. Okay. I, I do want to talk about, like, the, the songs that we like the most and, like, stuff like that. Even if it's just a quick, like, here's my favorites. Here's the ones that don't work for me. Here's the one that I think is so much better than the studio one. Like, we can make five minutes on that. But I do find that my... Right, I got it. I got it right in front of me. Okay. My two about, least favorite... you plastic stuff, right? Yeah. Well, so not only do I think they take away from, like, the build of it in the way that the nine tr- out of 16 tracks are ordered, which I get you're cutting seven songs. That was songs. before double LPs I get were it. common and also, like... Yeah, who had ever heard of The Wall? That- like, they did they did double LPs back in the day, but that was, like, an expensive and ambitious enterprise. And also, like, it's kind of a weird thing where the album was an advertisement for the movie, which was an advertisement for speaking in tongues. That's the... I think that's the problem. I think... Speaking in tugs is actually, I don't want to say, um, of like, when you go from like, uh, uh, more songs about buildings and food to, uh, little creatures, which I think is a stretch that is pretty unimpeachable on that list. And I'm, I'm not trying to like hurt your childhood, Peter. I think as an album, speaking in tongues is my least favorite of those, even if it has songs that I fucking love, like, uh, this must be the place and, uh, uh, girlfriend is better and stuff like that. So, and it has songs that I like, but like, I specifically am thinking of like how in this movie, I think the low point of a, of a perfect movie in the best concert film of all time is uh, the, the one, two punch of swamp and making flippy floppy where it almost becomes boring for a sec. Um, and the fact that those two songs are included on the album, <laughs> which is like, oh man, there's just. There's so much like and and what songs aren't kind of bums me out a little bit. I disagree because I think well for one, um, I agree with you. Swamp is no no one's favorite Talking Heads song, but it adds to the build of the album. And then it's the, they Pete, put it as the second song on the actual album though. Like they do, don't they do Life During Wartime and then Swamp? Mm-hmm. No, they do Psycho Killer then Swamp. That seems bad. <laughs> As a, as but they're album. doing the actual opening to the documentary. That part's and then good. They do Swamp, okay. which is tying, and then they go to Slippery People, which is like that's the same trajectory the album has, the movie has. I mean, they instead of Heaven and um, Thank You for Sending Me an Angel, they did Swamp though, Peter. Yeah, I, I don't. I, yeah, like I mean, they had to make choices. I don't know. I yeah, exactly. And I'm saying they made bad choices. That's all I'm saying. I would say Swamp is the only thing I would switch out in here, though. Really? Life during wartime is on the second half. Well, of the obviously, album. yeah. Of course, I like that one. Um, I mean, on. "Take Me to the River" isn't their song, really. It's, I mean, it's their it's their reconstruction of it. Maybe you could strike "Take Me to the River" and switch out Swamp for something else. That's sort of the problem is they don't have a lot of slow songs. Um, I mean, they don't include This Must Be The Place, which feels like a huge mistake, because I love the live version of, of This Must Be The Place. Uh, I feel like This Must Be The Place, the live version versus the album version, is pretty similar. Which they don't is have like, Cross-Eyed and pla- Painless. No, uh, but that's seems... pretty different. Like, that's that's pretty different. Like, that's something that, like, would be nice if they did a two-album uh, version of this. But have you considered taking it up uh, with uh, David Byrne in 1984 instead of me? I don't know. This feels like... It, it is weird. <laughs> sure. I'm just saying, I do think it's funny that, like... You just buy all the other albums. Like, I Well, did. hold on. No, the, they, they do, th- thankfully, they did release a... Um, 
an album that has all of it, except I guess they did two other songs that are on uh, deleted scenes for the Blu-ray, which I don't have because it's still fucking super expensive. They did. Uh, yeah, I watched. Uh, yeah, I watched uh, the deleted deleted songs, but they're not coming to mind right now. What are the two deleted songs? It, it's cities. And I'm, I have to look up the other probably something off of fear of music still. Yeah, um, C- I mean, was... cities is obviously great. Um, um but yeah they uh yeah I, I i watched that as well i have the blu-ray from well maybe it's big Robert. country but yeah so uh, <laughs> that was that's let's let's park here for five, i want to i want to talk just about 15 minutes songs. and talk about um uh uh, uh uh true stories because no wait no hold, hold on i want to talk about we haven't even got to the other thing we're covering and i want to talk about specific songs on stop making sense well we're going to come back to stop making sense brother when i don't know man then we won't talk about true stories yeah i don't think we should i was gonna talk about it for five minutes okay talk just go ahead talk about i really i really like true stories you guys i do too i want to do but i want to do it i want to do its own episode trying to come up with a segue to talk about true stories quickly because true stories also has an interesting sort of album release thing okay yeah that's fine um, so they also put in an album called True Stories, which coincided with David Byrne's uh, directorial debut, um, True Stories. And similar to we're talking about the Stop Making Sense final album, um, there's like a difference between the album that was put out that I grew up with for True Stories, which is just like a solid, pretty good Talking Heads album. Yeah, a few good um, songs. And the really fun movie, which is a musical with a diverse cast of different people singing, different choirs, different people singing um, these various David Byrne written and composed songs. And this this movie is weird. Like, one of you take it. I, I, like, it's 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 David Byrne sort of like riffing on Americana in a very calm way, and like it's him sort of taking down consumerism, but like at an angle you've never seen somebody take down consumerism from. It yeah, feels so guess... like if you put David Lynch and <laughs> yeah. and Slackers into the telepod, this would somehow come out. Yeah. So I know we, yeah, we all watched uh, True Stories, Carrie and I, for the first time. I loved it, too. My take on True Stories is that next, when we do Musical May 5, Feels Good to Be Alive, um, I think we covered True Stories. Hell yeah. Like the uh, yeah, that'd be fun. That that would be fun. I I feel like we probably should have uh, <laughs> given ourselves a little bit more runway and then just squeezed it into this month. But um, the, uh, the... The, the, the essentially like it is a it is a movie where David Byrne hands off a lot of the performing pieces to other people. Yeah. Um, so Do you want to like, hear John Goodman sing a Talking Head song? Because I'll tell you what, I would rent specifically True Stories in no other movie. <laughs> it's, it's it's there's there's not a lot. On there's not movie. another. I mean, there's a lot of good John Goodman movies, but he doesn't sing a Talking Head song in King Ralph that I'm aware of. Yeah, I think he's it's very... a real missed opportunity that John Goodman doesn't do more musicals. Because he's I know. so good. Don't worry, we'll be talking about John Goodman dancing next month as well. <laughs> God. Uh-huh. We'll, be sad, we'll be sadder about it, but we'll it'll come up. I think this podcast generally has a lot of affinity for John Goodman. Yeah, um, he's good, man. you not? And he has a very, uh, a kind of uh, perfect quality in that, like, I want to watch him do everything, even if he's bad at it. 
um, which is like the sign of like true movie star charisma. But he's somebody who you don't think about as a movie star because like he's the definition of a character actor. But he was yeah. the lead in all these different movies. And then he got to be in like art movies as like the villain in like Coen Brother movies. And then uh, he's the lead of sitcoms. He came back to be the lead on a, a sitcom that he left 20 years earlier and it didn't feel like a complete retreat uh, with Roseanne. Like, yeah. Why why did I why was I not annoyed at John Goodman for going back to Roseanne and then thus the Connors when you know Yeah and now he's the star of an unrelated sitcom, The Connors. <laughs> like what why was I not mad at John Goodman for doing that? It's because it's fucking John Goodman. I'm sure he's doing great work on the Connors with a pretty bad script. Is that show still on? Who knows? I this think is so. um, Yes. Um, I looked up right before this. I'm like, still doing that, right? <laughs> um, I will also just say, like, I, I love baby-faced John Goodman. He's Oh, precious. He's such a cutie pie. He's adorable. He's like, yeah, yeah. he's like this big baby. Yeah. And he's his like face massive, acting, but tiny. His face acting in that movie was so good. <laughs> so his good. expressions were just so good. <laughs> so yeah. we need to get to American Utopia. I want to talk yes. a little bit about just some favorite tracks and, and the way it was played. Cause obviously that's a huge part of any, any movie. I'll, I'm going to give a couple categories and I just, if you guys want to uh, add your own or copy off this, I think uh, whatever you want to do is fine, I guess. Uh, so I will say the, 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 if I was to give the award for song that is so much better um, than the studio version that I, I usually skip the studio version. Like I think most versions of this, of, of the songs here are better than their studio versions. I think that is rare for live albums. This is one of the only live albums that when I made my top 100 albums of all times that I felt comfortable uh, putting this in there as its own thing, just because of how, how well the songs are, but specifically, um, Thank you for sending me an angel. I think is so much better on this than it is the studio version that I I usually just skip the studio version because the way it's so manic and propulsive and uh, on this compared to the actual uh, album on uh, uh, more buildings or some more buildings about songs and food. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, more songs about building and food. Uh, I think it makes it hard to listen to the other one. Uh, I want to see a building about a building about food. I mean, I knew. I just decided to go with it uh, the second I got it wrong because it was funny. It's very stop mm-hmm. making sense of you. I, I'm actually pretty into it. Um, I think my least favorite song is is Swamp. Um, my favorite like performances. Um, I'm actually going to give to. Uh, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but it's definitely Life During Wartime. Uh, once in a lifetime and then i i fucking really just love the genius of love performance just because i think it just seems so like again i know i've been <laughs> scolding chris france quite a lot for that performance it just otherwise it just seems so much fun and such a weird break and i like how much faster the song is in this context than it is on their album that it felt super refreshing to see and hear it um, and there's that part where the, the the only Chris France part that I like in it is where he yells, everybody rock the house. And like that energy that that propels from the screen in that moment is so goddamn good. And then my in general favorite Talking Head song that's performed here, which is also my favorite Talking Head song, which is not all that original, is um, uh, This Must Be The Place. And I love that he spends the entire time until the very end when he dances with the lamp. Uh it's the only song 
on the whole fucking concert that he stands in one place for that long on a song called This Must Be The Place. And if that's not intentional, then I don't understand David Burke. There's a moment where he is playing with the lamp and he's genuinely smiling in a way he doesn't smile the rest of the documentary. Yeah. And he makes sure the lamp lands perfectly upright on its stand. Uh, yeah. And he almost misses his yeah. singing cue. Yeah. Because he needs to run a foot or two over to the mic. It's like a shuttle run. You can see run. him, you can see his, the smile sort of drift away from his face. Like, he is in love with that lamp. Yeah. He, but he love lamp. He love lamp. <laughs> I do have that in my notes. Can you believe I wrote that down? I'm like, I better say he love lamp somewhere in this. <laughs> yeah, sorry to beat you to the punch. I, I very much believe that. Um, so sweet. Yeah. Um, well, and I also just love, like, again, I, I'm just so, like, amazed at that idea of, like, um, oh, uh, for every other song, it wasn't the place and he kept moving around. And for this song, this, <laughs> this must be the place. <laughs> so two notes there on that as well. Yeah. One, that's the song where everyone comes in really close and it has more of like a family, like an intimate family vibe. Which is yeah. very like sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, everyone except for like I think Chris France and uh, Bernie Worrell because they have to be for the band. and the polo. Um, get that away. But like, uh, <laughs> and then Lynn come in close. Like Jerry, yeah. it, it, it's 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 just very sweet. And then two, like that is something we don't we didn't talk about and we probably won't talk about much. But like a lot of Talking Head songs are about less about like. I experienced something pure and beautiful and I want to share it with you, which is like how most like folk music and, and direct pop music is a lot of, uh, uh, um, the talking head songs, particularly this must be the place is about abstraction. And like, that's a song almost that's like about somebody being at home and hearing a love song on the radio, but they don't have anybody that they're in love with. So they're dancing with a lamp. Like yeah. that level of a separation that like you're kind of viewing the world through your TV, through your camera, through your media is like what makes talking heads so relatable, but not pretentious. Well, and that's, I mean, really quickly on once in a lifetime, I think that's a song that has aged with me in a very beautiful way and why like this performance is amazing. The studio versions performance, everything about it. But you know, when I saw Kermit the frog performance at 13, the frog and fucking ripped dude, he's great. That dude is awesome. Um, but, but like, it, you know, and the, the lyrics actually made sense to a 13-year-old. Like, how weird it would be to have a car and a wife and a house and all this stuff, right? And, like, obviously that's not necessarily what the song is about. But, you know, as a kid, those lyrics uh, spoke to me. Because adulthood, in the same way that, like, life and domesticity and stuff like that to David Byrne is this weird... Uh, thing that he's trying to like use you know he's an outsider he's looking on the inside and trying to make sense of a lot of things in the world from his own perspective and i think you know a 13 year old or a 12 year old looking at adult shit like having a family um or a spouse and stuff like that feels like you're an outsider looking into a future adulthood and as i've gotten older and like have read a little bit about like david byrne um what he wrote the song about one of the few songs that he has spoken about just because he feels like a lot of people didn't get it. And I guess did want to correct the record a little bit. Um, But that, that meaning resonates so much too. that idea that like people get in their routines, like people think it's an anti, because people thought it was an anti-commercialism song. He, I guess he was like, well, it's not, but what he says it's about also resonates with me quite a bit because that idea of like 
you go through your routine and then every once in a while as an adult you stop and look around and are like holy shit like how did i even like like you know if you talk to someone who's bought a house they'll probably say to you like i have no idea how all that worked out but somehow i have this house and even when i go to buy it you you just done you jumped to my point (laughs) i'm sorry yeah like it's true like i was about to say I bought two. uh, Yeah, I purchased two houses, and the idea of buying a third is like I have no idea how I got those other two. (laughs) Like how 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 do I do that? Like that idea of like, um, you know, I remember when I wasn't married, I felt like, and I was you know in relationships or not in relationships. It was like, how does anyone get married? And now that I'm married, I'm like, how did that? Like the amount of things that came together to make that happen is weird. And same thing with like kids and stuff like that. And like you you don't notice all those things you don't realize that all of a sudden you've become an adulthood with a family and a house and a mortgage and a car and a job because there's so much process shit you have to do throughout the day and you just do it because it just becomes routine and then every once in a while you're like what the fuck like yeah where, where, how did how did i get here <laughs> there's a there's a disassociation that i have especially it happens a lot during covid right because we're just like at home and like everything is a little surreal but there's a disassociation that happens um quite often uh with me that uh any time that a major life hurdle happens all of a sudden i'm like how did I get here? And I feel I, I feel like you're, you're right. Like when I first heard Once in a Lifetime when I was 13, I was like, this is just like a cool, you know, poignant song about how life's crazy. And now that I'm older, I'm like, no, genuinely, like, well, how did <laughs> yeah. I get here? Yeah. I've been waiting yeah. a very long time for someone to explain this. <laughs> someone needs to tell me why I'm here. I think there's a point when we're younger, when we think about like, here's how it's going to go. And you kind of have like this plan for yourself and you think about the plans you want to have and how you're going to do all the things that you want to do. Then you realize that the act of doing them is a lot more just flying by the seat of your pants and like, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm doing it now. And that's that. And you don't really think about the experience until much later. Like I... I do not have children at this point in time, but it's something that I think about a lot. And I've asked people, like, how do you know when you're ready to have kids? And every time I do, they're like, you're never ready. You just do it. Like, you, you, you know, either decide that you're going to or you're not because it's not you can't be ready. And yeah. I feel like that's that's what I get from that song um, that like you it, you just you just have to like do it, and then you can reflect on it after the fact. Yeah, it's uh, the the idea that being a grown up is 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 actually a like a fake concept, and that it's just a bunch of people that like all agreed that like grown up meant that they were smart and knew what they were doing, and like t- like it was a you know a lie agreed upon, so to speak. Exactly. Uh, and then as as our generation and younger generations are like they like you know one of the things about having kids that that happens almost immediately is like you realize that as you start talking to people that have had kids or uh your parents or whatever else it is you realize that they didn't fucking know any like they didn't know what they were doing that exact sense that you talked about like well right now i'm being told that i go to school so i go to school and i do that and then you know the next plan for me is i go to college which you know i have an application process and then the next plan is i get a good job and i get a good spouse and I get a good house and blah, blah, blah. And then like you can, you can, if you're lucky, get to that 
college point. And then it's just like, it's just random chaos <laughs> yeah. for everything else. And you're like, wait a second. I was told yeah. this was structured. We don't I, yeah, think I, about... I was under the impression this was going to make sense as soon as I got to the next hurdle. Yeah. It feels like you're everyone's in a cult. Right. <laughs> like, you're like, no, 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 don't worry. <laughs> the leader will give you a, a, a piece of uh, literature in the next level that will make everything make sense. And you're like, wait, how do mortgages work? <laughs> and we don't think about the things that come up in life that you just can't plan for. Like, yeah. there's so much of adulthood is just, like, going with the catastrophes and the, you know, the things that you could never see coming that come to you. And then that alters everything and you have to go with it. And that kind of unpredictability seems to be something that they're grappling with in their music as well. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, none we we to have no sense of what any of this is so let's just enjoy the moment while we have it and try not to worry about it too much maybe that's why they don't tell kids the truth because it probably would be scary to just be like yeah i don't know good yeah. luck <laughs> um which i guess will probably be what my kids end up learning <laughs> yeah i don't know hopefully you figure out the right combination i'll be here to hug you when you don't but i <laughs> no idea exactly um uh, so before we just uh, quickly pivot to American Utopia, is there any uh, musical moments, highs, lows, uh, live version better, studio versions better that you guys want to call out? Uh, so because I'm like, you know, a newbie, I get, I didn't realize I was like so unaware of so much of their music, but um, I don't think I'd ever heard Slippery People before. That was a great fucking version. Yeah, it's so it's so solid. Good it's so yeah. good. I don't. Yeah, I think I just didn't know it at all. Um, and yeah, I mean, Once in a Lifetime is probably the song I knew best that I liked a lot, and that version is phenomenal. Um, it's I, I I didn't I I didn't really feel like anything was was bad. It's more like I gotta watch this a bunch more times before <laughs> I know like you know oh this is the moment I connect to the most. But there wasn't. I, none of it felt off to me. It just felt like this is a really good concert. That, uh, I mean, I guess here's the thing I, I also recognize for myself. Like, I listened to this and there were songs I didn't had never heard before. Um, for sure. And I, I know Slippery People and uh, What a Day That Was and stuff were, were on that list. Uh, part of my, like, resonance with those songs or some of those songs now is because almost immediately after this, I listened to the album over and over when I was driving. Oh, yeah. And watched the movie a couple more times. And I, when I say the album, uh, they t t take back my previous criticism. Like, in 2014, they released, like, here's the whole album in the order. And that's that's what I was listening to. Though, though my guess is, Peter, that vinyl that you have is the, like, official original album, right? Yeah, it's from whatever, back in the day. Um, 1984, Sire Records Company. So, yeah. Um, it's old, what, old as shit, older than me. What about you? I mean, Peter, of all people, like, uh, I don't know when you. It's a good movie. It's fine. Let's move on. No, but when, when, <laughs> you, but like you, you probably had the most, I, I do find that one of the hardest, um, things sometimes about watching a live version of a band that you probably 
Like, my guess is you had heard most of these songs by the time you finally watch or whenever you end up watching Stop Making Sense. So, like, I, saw, I, I watched Stop Making Sense in like late high school, early college. And I, I like, it was just something, maybe it's just like they didn't have a good tape or something. Like, this wasn't like a movie we watched growing up, which is weird no. because like we grew up with my parents blasting the albums on vinyl and then CD. Um, one version that I both like, like, and like, that I mostly like more on the live version, but um have a have a, a an affinity for the the album version uh quite strongly as well as cross-eyed and painless yeah because um it's it live you feel like it's um it's a punk song it's a punk song it's less of a it's less of an art art pop kind of experiment which i love art pop experiments it like at home put on remain in light like it's one yeah. of the best like just like exciting kind of like hangout party kind of albums um and, uh, but the one thing that they miss in the live version, because there's too much energy, is that in the album version of, <laughs> of uh, Cross-Eyed and Painless, when they're just going, still waiting, they sound way more bored on the album version, which I think is way funnier and more fun to me. <laughs> yeah. I love, <laughs> I, say, I mean, I love the album version of Cross-Eyed and Painless. But, I say yeah. it all the time. I say all, that all the time now, because the idea of in the middle of this, like, big energetic pop song just being like still waiting <laughs> but in the in the live version they can't help but sound excited because david burns probably fucking out of breath <laughs> also uh, I that's mean, one difference to carrie's point he does take off the suit after 10 minutes but the pants are on for at least 25 minutes i know oh, i yeah. love the moment when he's he has the short sleeve button down tucked <laughs> into the big pants I know. And he it's, puts on, it's a he puts really a good look cap. Hold on. Yeah, let's talk about the red hat. Can we not? (laughs) No, but it was weird. This is, uh, I don't know why, but like this time I'm like, oh, yeah. Can we digitally alter the red hat to any other color? Because I know that David Byrne, like, obviously it's from 1984, but like. It was, that was so (laughs) uncomfortable. And I was, and it doesn't have any writing on it. But it's like, ooh, ooh, no, this is giving me flashbacks. Let's not, please. It also yeah. feels like in in the in the way, and when he puts it on, it's like the end of the fucking show, right? It, <laughs> it would feel like a political statement if you saw anything like that. You're like, "Fuck you, dude! You made me enjoy that whole concert, and you want to make America great again? <laughs> Go away!" Terrible. Yeah, it it, it the, when that moment hit, I was it, it took me a minute to just be like. No, David Byrne just looks like a a, a husky little boy in very oh, big pants. <laughs> I think I think he looks like he's gonna go do some catfish fishing. <laughs> like he's gonna wake up at the crack of dawn in his fucking giant pants and his shirt. And I might as well wear a hat because it is five in the morning to get the best catfish. Um, let's talk quickly about American Utopia, which will mm-hmm. probably be too quickly for everyone. But um, Spike Lee directed movie came out in twenty twenty. Uh, his Broadway show, which he also toured around, which I'm uh, completely furious that I missed. Um, I would have gone. I found out the day after the concert. I just didn't know that it was here. Played at a new uh, theater. I was in Chicago when they were in Chicago. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah. Um, well, they didn't play like the stuff that I had the mailing list. There's a theater here called The Palace, which is really good. And I actually saw a band later after he came. Um, and I really like it. It's um, they've been they were booking a lot of good bands, but I wasn't on that mailing list because uh, that was giving me the updates because it was so new. And he decided to play there. And I a couple of things I just want to get out is that uh, I'm so happy that this uh, this features 
Like it's a lot of, you know, David Byrne solo stuff. There's a couple covers in here. It is also just really nice to see three talking head song that I fucking love that is obviously not in Stop Making Sense that I get to see a performance of. Um, and that is, uh, I mean, I guess it would just be the three probably that he didn't play. Like I love uh, Road to Nowhere. I, 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 um, I mentioned that I, how much I love Born Under Punches, which he does an amazing performance of where he lets each in- instrument kind of build in, which is also very fitting to the album version of Born Under Punches. And then uh, I, uh, I Zimbra. Oh, yeah. Those were all incredible. Whoa. Whoa. there! I, I was Googling when the tickets were. I don't know if this is completely bullshit, but on the, like, the ticketing websites, they're claiming that that they're doing this in September or October. Like and the, the, tour, to the tour might be resuming when theaters can yeah. reopen. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. I might get a second chance. Hey. Um, I don't know. Would you say you're still waiting? Still waiting. Uh, yeah, so th- that's awesome. Uh, I liked hearing uh, the t- uh, the TV song from um, from. Uh, you can tell it's just getting late because I've said it so many times. Everything will have love this giant. Sorry. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. Oh, 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 the Saint Vincent song. Yeah, he he does the song uh, from Love This Giant, where the the TV one. Yeah. Uh, not lazy. No, it's it, it has the name TV in the title. Well, I said not, please. <laughs> I mean, it also has a big TV on stage. Um, I should watch TV. It's yeah, called. yeah, yeah. There go. That yeah. was a good one. Yeah, that was great. Um, can, can we talk a little, and then I'll shut up, and you guys can talk whatever you want. I do want to talk about the Janelle Monae song. Uh huh. He he sings a, a version of uh, "The Hell You Talking About." Which is definitely the whitest version to say the t- the whitest way to say the name of the title, but I don't know what to tell you. I'm a white person. I'm trying my best to be <laughs> to say things right. Um, uh, so I I I had the like huge Janelle Monae fan from back when uh, you know her first her first full album came out. I read about it and was was blown away. Um, this I I heard this song. This song, while it definitely is thematically. Um, uh, on on par with what what the version of it in this movie is, um, it's it's not it's not just you know say say their names uh, and stuff like that. It's it's just it's kind of a full story verse about racism and Black Lives Matter and stuff like that in the actual song. And I, so I never knew that she had turned like this kind of message and this beat into this protest song. I don't know how I missed that from all these like marches and stuff like that. So not only do I do I really like the way it's introduced. I really like, I, I I really like the the sentiment. Like I like that he recognized like who he was, but also that like the song spoke to him so much he wanted to perform it. And then having you know relaying the conversation he had with Janelle Monae as as a way to kind of introduce what he wanted to talk about. Uh, and then it also made me go find a bunch of the versions uh, that Janelle Monae has sung in various protests um, that match kind of the 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 lyrics that he's 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 doing in this cover version and that was amazing to find too that i had somehow missed because i fucking love that so it, it, it's very interesting because like i wonder what the collaboration was with spike lee on this because yeah um at first it seems like a strange uh fusion other than you know them both being artists that worked in new york right uh, mm-hmm. and both of them that came up in the 80s like it seems like a, a sort of strange fusion um 
<laughs> because as you were talking about similarly with uh, uh stop making sense like there's a there's a surprise that happens when you see that the audience and the cat and, and the whole the whole performing crew is is pretty diverse for the 1984 right like mm-hmm. people in the audience aren't just white hipsters like the, there's people of all ages and of all colors like it's it's really cool um and i think that sort of speaks to the universality of, of david byrne but then we get to we get to the janelle monet song and you can see that like david byrne feels like he can no longer like he's like a lot of us like he feels like he can no longer like just sit on the sidelines and say uh you know i hate racism like that's just not an option anymore you have to be actively anti-racist and it's kind of interesting that even a guy who we just spend a lot of time talking about like lacks some social graces he has a core understanding of the humanity of people um that like these are people that died for no fucking reason and that like though though you know it might seem out of place for you know polite white broadway audiences like who gives a shit he he understands the social necessity of art like this, and mm-hmm. he had this huge uh, audience and this huge platform, and it felt like his way of saying, "Like I can't, I can't just do my own stuff. I have to find a way of making a statement that." I could never actually write myself. I could never actually conceive of myself because of who I am, and. Mm-hmm. I need to allow that platform. And I think one of the most interesting parts of that particular song is that while, yes, he is performing, he is very much, he is much more in the background than he is at any other point in the show. Everyone, Um, everyone sings a a verse, right? And he doesn't get any more verses necessarily that I can remember than any other individual person. Um, And I, I think that's so important to making that work. Yeah. What else do you guys have on American Utopia? I think that Spike Lee is a really phenomenal director of uh, filmed live performance. Um, Just a few months ago, I watched for the first time, um, he directed a filmed version of the musical Passing Strange. um, Yes. Which I'd never seen before, and it's fantastic. And I think between seeing that and this fairly close together, um, I I think that, I mean, Jotha Debbie was great, but it takes a very specific eye and a very specific brain to get the exact uh, production right for doing these kinds of things. And there's something about Spike Lee where he gets it. He, I, I think that he he does it in a way that elevates it, um, in a way that I haven't seen most other directors who try it uh, get to that point. And uh, I, I I found the production of it to be extremely engaging. Um, I loved just the obviously all the aspects of the show itself, but but also like the construction of it and. It, it felt it felt immersive in a different way than Stop Making Sense did in a way that um, lit me up and made me really excited to keep going and exploring all of their stuff. Yeah, yeah, because I, I think Spike Lee is someone who, like, hits. Um, I have a lot of um, 
conflicts with modern day Spike Lee movies, N- notably uh, his movie about Chicago uh, and and gun violence. Uh, I kind of agreed with a lot of uh, Black Chicago voices that I don't think he particularly understands the city well, and I could I don't think he particularly tackled the gender issues well in that movie. Um, but Spike Lee, seeing Spike Lee in this sort of like vibrant theater setting again, you're like that's that's spike lee like that's yeah. that's the guy that like broke the world uh back in the 80s like that he he took what you know um what this moment that was that was thriving and he was like all right i'm gonna take this to a new place and open up a bunch of doors for a bunch of people that that you know have the doors shut in their face all the time and um you can't ever take that away from spike lee right like he's an expert stylist who and, and like a, a film revolutionary and like getting to see him in this context, it's very easy to be able to see this as like a retirement job, right? Like, uh, oh, you filmed a New York, in New York Broadway show. Um, so you, oh, so you walked like three three blocks and then you picked up your camera. Like, <laughs> um, but it's not that. It's not complacent. It's active, vibrant, and aggressive in the way that like. <laughs> the the uh, defy bloods is like he's he's still just got it um and i love the fact that like even when i don't like a spike lee movie in particular i still love that he's like out there swinging oh Um, yeah the sweet blood of jesus is a movie i was like pretty not into and i was like i did we did we both watch ganja and hess i don't know if we both watched the same movie um and he uh and then but i was like i want to see what spike lee's up to after that obviously like is he's a man that is is never content. He he has he has an energy that is unmatched with you know I can't think of you know how many other people ca- can capture what he can in that sense. And he's such a he's such a good person for the vibrancy of theater and the vibrancy of mm-hmm. live performance. And uh, it, it was great to see this through his eyes. Yeah, this this America Utopia is weirdly a movie that's like, it's funny, David Byrne calls it a movie to a Broadway, <laughs> a Broadway audience that paid probably good amount of money for this. Um, this will be premiering on HBO. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, like he called it a movie. It's pretty, yeah. just, it made me laugh. Um, he, he's kind of cutting through the abstraction and the what could be viewed as pretentiousness, but I don't view as pretentiousness. Um, to to get to like a, a, a an innocent simplicity. Um, that's quite beautiful. And uh, he there's a moment that he does basically as a riff where he's like, Brian Eno inspired me to change how I thought about language and songs. Um, and he only hints at it. Like, you, he could write a whole book about him and Brian Eno collaborating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they did minimum four albums together. Well, he's uh, also written way more books than I would have expected. He just, like, so he could definitely write a book on it because he's written ten books. Yeah, he wrote a book wow, called... Really? The, yeah. the physics, the, the something, it's the something of music, the the physics of music, the sound of music. He wrote a book that's uh, essentially he wrote just the, like, sound the sound of music. of music. Yeah, he wrote the sound of music. That sound, is my and, favorite. And the sound We're of music next week. He wrote, uh, yeah. So he has written. Here's, here's this is how many books he's written. He wrote, wrote true stories, which my guess is has something to do with the movie. <laughs> um, so there's wrote, two true stories albums. There's the movie and there's a book. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. He wrote uh he wrote uh 
a book called Strange Ritual in 1995, a book called Your Action World in 1999, The New Sins in 2001, uh, David Byrne Ask You What Is It in 2002, envisioning uh, emotional ep- – god damn it. Epis- this way too it's way too late for a science word I've never Epistemological? seen Epistemological? <laughs> what, yeah, word is, inf- what word is Information, Arboretum in 2006, Bicycle Diaries in 2009, and How Music Works in 2000. How Music Works. Oh, I think you got it wrong. It's Sound of Music. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, here's what's crazy about that. One of those books has a link on Wikipedia. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird. Like even I was I was going to uh, I was going to buy a copy of How Music Works. And then I saw that, like, if you go on most book websites, like it's it's a minimum of 35 to 40 dollars for a paperback i'll eventually read it but it was like that's the as i was buying those sergio leone books for last month that we recorded like if you buy like hyper specific books like written as almost a doctorate like one of the books is like 80 bucks oh yeah it's just 200 pages it's like buying a vhs in 1988 (laughs) that's what ebook readers are for um (laughs) But uh okay so uh, uh he he re- there's a part where uh he reads a Kurt Sh- he, they, sorry they perform uh a Kurt Schwitters um dadaist poem the first minute or so of it as a song um and then he's like and then this goes on for 40 minutes um, that was really funny it's very it's like a very funny joke because he's he's making fun of himself and Brian Eno for like being obsessed with these guys and like this can be very self-indulgent but i'm trying to avoid that today and then he talks about like hugo ball i took lyrics that hugo ball wrote and and made uh uh um and uh that is like a really i think thoughtful moment because um a lot of the stories we hear about how david byrne writes music we're like interpreting through how brian Eno talks openly about how he writes lyrics <laughs> so like uh, hearing david byrne just come out and say like oh yeah a lot of this makes means nothing but if it means something to you it means something and i found that quite beautiful yeah i yeah. loved that part uh greed he, he has a opening and closing coda um so like an opening and closing uh piece of narration about how children's brains gradually winnow oh, down yeah. connections mm-hmm. um and then he's basically the final point of america utopia is, is is discussing how we as adults if, if we treat our world as, as as a means of communication and, and the, the people around us as, as uh, connection points, we can rebuild those connections in a macro scale as opposed to a micro scale. And um, and it's it's a fairly beautiful uh, sentiment expressed by a man who, like, again, like, is, <laughs> he doesn't think about the world the way that we, we do. And that's why he writes pop songs differently than we do. And he approaches music the way differently than we do. And, like... Him ending America Utopia on this like beautifully humanist note is again him cutting through abstraction. He's cutting through what could be viewed as pretension to get to the core point. He's like, I I make music to unite people. I make music so you're all feeling the same thing that I'm feeling, and then we're all connected as one in this this room, and then everybody watching at home is connected to you, and so on and so on, and like that sort of like be- that beautifulness of it. That that is also tapered against like if you cut out all the spoken word sections of this, this would just be a killer concert, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and ending all that with one fine day, um, and then he goes to um, 
of course, um, uh, Road to Nowhere, but like ending that section with One Fine Day, which is from uh, his album he made with Brian Eno, the second album he made with Brian Eno, um, Everything Happens Will Happen Today, uh, is, is so, so perfectly beautiful. Because he was like, I'm going to give you something, something gorgeous that I'm not going to end this with just like a, a dance, a dance song. I'm going to, I'm going to end this with something uh, gorgeous and sort of a rumination together. And then he's like, actually, we are going to have a dance song. We're going to do, <laughs> we're going to do uh, Road to Nowhere. And then we're going to do um, The Great Curve is what he plays after Road to Nowhere, which is, it's just like a series of just like, yeah, we, we've got to leave on a party note. And he marches through the audience, like the cats going out in the audience with the musical cats. Oh, Yeah. It was such a good thing. You saw cats and he was like, I, I wish to also walk into the audience. And I, yeah, I, I just liked it because he, he spends so much time talking about the stage and stuff like that. And I, I love that the end of the movie is um, the way to like enter and being around people and make those connections as that speech that he gave. And I like that that's literalized in the best David Byrne way of him literally untethering himself from the stage to go around and be around other people, which feels like a, just a wonderful little perfect perfect moment even if acknowledging as as road to nowhere so does it's like it's a joyful song about i don't know if we can do this but let's band together and go on this journey um together i also think uh uh great trivia note you know he starts with that wonderful speech where he's holding the brain and talking about connections that um i found out that that is a real brain uh that he personally took out of the uh lead singer's head of uh, the band rusted root for confusing a bunch of people into thinking that uh, Send Me On My Way was a Talking Heads song. (laughs) (laughs) It's so nice also because he's playing with it and then one of his minions uh, uh, comes and and takes it away. Um, I don't think we talked about the fact that this movie has two interpretive dancers that also become singers at a different point I and like there is i love that not, yeah it's not pretentious at all it's like very sweet and fun and it's like it's 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 basically david bird admitting that he's like older and can't do these moves anymore and he's like but what if i hired i hired two people to to capture what's in my heart do my moves yeah they were incredible yeah. <laughs> they're great I but also, i i don't want to i don't want to gloss over the fact that, that david byrne did kill the lead singer of rusted root and display his brain on stage allegedly <laughs> no jury on earth would convict him <laughs> no I, I think that's true i think it's literally true <laughs> that's what reviewers are referring to <laughs> oh yeah there we go i forgot about that he, that he killed and murdered and preserved the brain of the lead singer from rusted root <laughs> whose whose name will be forgotten from history I didn't even bother looking it up because it's already forgotten from history. It's uh, it's uh, Rust E. Root. It's Stephen Root's brother. <laughs> oh, well, then I feel a little bad. <laughs> Stephen oh, Stephen's no. such a great guy. I feel bad oh, that he's... Oh, oh da- David. David was justified in doing that. He could do it all he wants. <laughs> Send me on my way. Um, I think this where I'll end it because I don't feel a need to do a final thoughts on this we necessarily. But I, uh, I would love to, the, you know, the two things that we didn't really get a chance to cover, I would love for next year for Musical May 5, Keep Hope Alive, that, um, that we do both true stories as kind of a sequel, but also I would have loved if we got a chance to talk about uh, Sack Lunch Bunch. Uh, the John Mulaney special with a oh, yeah. big, couple sections with David Byrne. I think I think if we do a sequel episode next year, that's the one-two punch that we cover. Sounds good. 
Yeah, <laughs> no one seems excited by that. Or it's I haven't, morning, I haven't, this- I haven't seen Sack Lunch Bunch, but oh, but I want to talk about true stories all day long. Yeah, I would love to do. I would love to do Sack Lunch Bunch. Yeah, the the the, the cameo by David Byrne is purely jubilant, and it was something that I'm really glad no one spoiled for me because when I was watching it, just lie. Like at this point, but he's in two sections. Like someone once said that, like he's. I think he's in it for like 15 minutes, which is not insignificant. But I also like that. Um, it's like uh, an hour long special. It's an hour long. Yeah, so that's not insignificant, is what I'm saying. I but someone uh, Nathan Rabin in his review of True Stories back on the dissolve which kind of started me on some of this journey to begin with talked about how david byrne is the world's best children's television host that never did that i see and and i think the sack lunch bunch stuff really epitomizes that as does a lot of true stories so that makes perfect sense yeah it's 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 extremely it's an extremely sweet segment too because it's just it's him duetting with a like a seven-year-old about how frustrating it is to be a child he also does the Mr. Wizard stuff with the volcano, but David Byrne is scared of the volcano going off, and the kid keeps trying to help him feel more comfortable with it. <laughs> Don't be afraid, David Byrne, but I'm scared. <laughs> so good. My my very uh, tired brain thought that you were making a Seinfeld joke. It was like, I didn't know that David Byrne was in sack lunch. Oh, no. No, John Mulaney's sack no, lunch yes. bunch. Like, yeah, but the, yeah. I, I figured it out, but at first I was like, what? I got I got <laughs> no. there eventually. No, yeah. uh, David Byrne only starred in Mountain High. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get off that mountain! Um, it's too much energy for one in the morning. Uh, that's all I have. Uh, any any final thoughts from, uh, from either of you? Carrie, uh, uh, go ahead. It's I'm glad that this is the context that I finally saw um, Stop Making Sense, to be honest, because I have a feeling it's the sort of thing that eventually I would have put on, would have been like, that was great. And then I kind of would have gone on my way. And having oh, having send a you, send you on your way. <laughs> having a framework, having a framework for like understanding more about how it came to be and how it fits into the rest of their career it's it's making me already want to go back and spend more time with it so i am mm-hmm. i'm grateful for this opportunity and that i finally crossed a big one off the list and uh yeah 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 it's been it's been really beautiful to get to talk to you guys about this and uh this is one of the topics that i could literally talk about for just nonstop, like until i fall asleep so uh appreciate you guys letting me be a blowhard on this topic for a period of time uh so i'll keep my final thoughts short and sweet there's a joke on twitter that uh blah 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 awful person uh taught me that it was uh <laughs> that it was uh all right to be uh weird it was it, that it was uh, okay to be weird, uh, and I think it was inspired by David Bowie's death, maybe. Um, that like, uh, you guys make jokes, but you know, um, this dead tyrant uh, taught me that it was it was okay to be weird, or like Charles Manson taught me it was okay to be weird, oh. or whatever. Um, and I feel that way about David Byrne sincerely. Is that like? Uh, this movie, Stat Making Sense in particular, was very influential on me at a point in my life where I've talked about it. We talked about it during Briggs B. Bear back in um, March. March. 
and uh, I was I was getting there. I'm getting a sense of timeline finally. <laughs> um, it, it, it's that that there's a part in my life where I was very obsessed with like being cool and being a gatekeeper and like coming across as like cool and, and presentable and like I was being dishonest in that action, right? And like one of the things I love about David Byrne is like yes, he's putting on a performance, but like he's pr- doing a performance in pursuit of honesty, right? Like he's he's not doing this uh, to to perform some sort of I've been saying a hundred times tonight, like he's not being pretentious. Like he's he's doing this to view everything from an outsider perspective, for to get to truth from a different perspective, um, and so like uh, I got to thank David Byrne and the Talking Heads for like. Letting go of being cool was, like, the best decision of my life. Uh, it made me, ir- like, irrevocably happier. <laughs> um, and uh, it's stuff like this that makes me feel like, you know, there's sort of stripping away artifice, but adding your own sort of, like, um, performance to it is, like, kind of what I think we should all be striving for in a weird way. I'm not saying we should all uh, form our own bands and go on tour, but getting rid of all that extra luggage that that big suit that you just don't need um is uh is gonna make you a lot happier yeah i always think i i agree because i whenever i am out there on the dance floor i think of the famous advice that like dance like jonathan demi is shooting you and i that's <laughs> that's how i dance words to live yeah, by you, words, yeah, words to, to live by, by. uh yeah this so much this has been fantastic so so fun and i really like that like in, somewhat accidentally that we essentially found like uh three people uh who two of them are hosted we usually find on the show and carrie's our most <laughs> frequent guest so odds are but regardless like we have we have like we all i think really love uh stop making sense but we also are like at three stages of our journey with it right like yeah i saw I, you know peter was a lifelong talking heads fan who uh, saw this you know 15 years ago uh, i finally saw it after being a somewhat talking heads fan you know five, six years ago and carrie sa- uh, uh, saw it for the first time last week so it's just it's fun to be able to experience from all those different reference points um and it was perfect uh carrie before we wrap up uh what do you have to promote knowing of course as you do because you know how calendars work that it is the first week of may oh my god uh nothing tonight uh yeah but next time hopefully yeah yeah so i got something for carrie to promote she's going to be on an episode at the end of may of we love to watch on jesus christ superstar yes uh, <laughs> uh with other guest rick kelly as part of musical may uh next week we're doing that thing you do and peter it's been three and a half hours and i never looked it up uh and i'm gonna get it right just because we should announce it so hold on i can't believe like we're we are recording an episode on this. I don't understand why I literally cannot remember. Peter, you mystery. You theoretically agreed to do it. You don't have any idea what else we're recording. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm just. I'm, it's a fun quiz quiz game. Where you have. Oh, and we have a guest for it and everything. Peter, that would have been bad. We are doing uh, pop star. Never stop, never stopping, with the wonderful Douglas Lehman as our guest. Oh yay! Yay! Uh, so that will be a fantastic episode featuring someone who is amazingly passionate about that movie. Uh, I thought that she was going to pick 
brings me bear when we gave her those options. Um, and uh, but she was like, "No, pop star immediately. I want to do that." So I'm excited for that one. That is uh, either next week or the following week. That thing you do, and then we're 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 having a Carrie bookend with she's uh, great superstar. And I've never talked to Rick before on voice, and I'm so excited about that. It's fun bringing people together. <laughs> yeah, Rick has a great radio voice. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's I've listened to, to all his episodes, and I, like, yeah. DM with him a lot, but I've never, like, talked to yeah. him, and this is going to be very exciting. Yeah, it's a, it's a small world, but somehow... <laughs> Big enough that you two have never uh, talked to each other before. That's very strange. Um, we'll uh, we'll we'll amend that. Uh, so thank you again, Carrie, so much, and thank you, Aaron, so much for letting me um, be a blowhard tonight. Thank you, friends. Um, thank you, Peter, and, so uh, much, and yeah. thank you, Carrie, right. so much, and thank you for sending me an angel. Which one of us is the angel? Oh, I was talking to the audience. Oh, the audience is one unified angel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the audience in the future for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explained to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> if you can't <laughs> uh if you don't have a few bucks to chip in we totally understand and you want to support the 
show, we truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>